And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when on this show, just about anything can happen. We're, we're trying to make a connection literally halfway around the planet, and we've got a few snags, so fortunately... I have what in the business is called Phil, and I've got plenty to talk about tonight, so uh, uh, kind of fasten your seatbelts. We're going to have an extraordinary evening. Uh, My guest this morning is someone who is so interesting and who I've wanted to have on for so long, talking about something that is central to, and this is not an overstatement, central to all life on Earth and all the things that human beings are doing. So without further ado, let me kind of uh, do the top of the news here, and then we'll go to my guest this morning, who is Ray Tolmes, who I believe we are now connected to half a world away in New Zealand, where it is tomorrow night already. I mean, this is on the other side of the dateline. If you you think relativity is confusing, try making international phone calls halfway around the planet. Anyway, um, for those of you who are new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures, where you can kind of follow along, and you're going to want to do that tonight because we have some important graphs to show people, and uh, they're kind of the heart of the story, and you're going to want to be able to refer to them during the show. The way you get there is you click on tonight's banner on the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage is our URL, and you'll see a big banner there, how to make a lot of money using hyperdimensional physics for um, Saturday night, December 10th, and Sunday morning. And you click on that banner, that takes you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, it says in big letters to listen to the show, and under that, it says fast links to items, click on my name, That takes you to my section of Radio with Pictures. Item number one. Uh, We have been plugged into the official NASA Artemis blog for several months now because, remember, they tried to launch initially this unmanned test mission back in August. Then they tried again a few days later. Then they tried again, and then they tried a third time. And finally, um, about a month ago, uh, 20 five days and change now and counting, it was able to successfully leave um, pad 39B at uh, Cape Canaveral. And it went on an extraordinary looping journey as far away as about 50,000 miles beyond the moon from which it saw an extraordinary sight. So after all this time, 26 days, it will arrive home tomorrow, tomorrow, afternoon eastern time tomorrow morning pacific time at 12:40 uh, p.m eastern time so uh they're going to start coverage a couple hours earlier on nasa tv there is a ready link to nasa tv on the home page of the other side of midnight so you simply come here and you click on that and that will take you to the live broadcast which will cover every aspect of the Um, separation of the service module, the reorientation of the spacecraft, this incredibly 
searing reentry at something like uh, over 25,000 miles per hour, which will raise the temperature of this untested heat shield at lunar velocities coming back uh, just over escape velocity from the vicinity of the moon. It will test it to temperatures in excess of 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Anyway, that's the kind of ultimate test because if this spacecraft does not survive reentry from the last 26 rather extraordinary days that it has performed uh, estimably well, uh, won't mean anything. Because if you don't get the spacecraft back when there's a human crew in it, that is a very bad hair day. So the big test is tomorrow morning. It will enter the Earth's atmosphere uh, shortly before the uh, uh, splashdown at 1240. So you're going to want to, if you've been following the mission, you're going to want to watch the climax. It's going to come down in the Pacific around 300 miles south of San Diego because there was a big cold front moving through California and then on into where I am tonight in New Mexico, the land of enchantment. I've heard from uh, uh, Ron Gerbron, who is there just outside San Diego, that they're talking about an entire day of slashing cold rain. Well, given that we're a mile up or more, uh, the rain for California is going to be snow for here. So fortunately, this will uh, not take place until uh, um, Monday, uh, here and Sunday afternoon. So the splashdown, which has been moved accordingly to off Baja, uh, they can adjust the landing site by something like 1,200 miles. So they're doing that in preparation for this cold front, which will sweep into California and make, you know, life rather miserable for a whole bunch of people up to and including NASA astronauts. While that all that's going on this morning, at something like 2.28 um, a.m., uh, I think that's Eastern time, uh, NASA's going to try once again, actually it's not NASA, it's SpaceX, to launch the um, unmanned mission to the moon, which is called, uh, let me get this correct, Hakutu, Hakutu-R. This is an unmanned moon lander, which is going to be launched on a Falcon 9 rocket, um, it's a private company, Tokyo-based, which has built this uh, spacecraft up to and including a NASA payload, which is called a Lunar Flashlight CubeSat, which will be launched um, uh, in the early morning hours um, uh, here, uh, or I'm sorry, there, from Cape Canaveral. And I believe it's about 2.28 uh, Eastern time. And so adjust your clocks accordingly again. Uh, it will be, I believe, carried on NASA television. If not, you can Google the uh, space launch, Hakutu, H-A-K-U-T-O-R. That will take you to the SpaceX website, and they will have a running launch and commentary prior, about 15 minutes prior to the launch. So now the reason this is important is we've had a sudden spate of missions going to the moon. Um, Unlike uh, what I, I've said in item number two, the launch has now been rescheduled. When we wrote that a few days ago, it had been delayed for like the second or third time, but apparently the third time will be a charm, and they will get it off the uh, pad. And then in, uh, 
in several months. I mean, this is taking literally the slow boat to China because uh, uh, there were some people that were kind of wondering why the Artemis mission took uh, six, seven days to get to the moon and the Apollo astronauts took only three. And they then based their claim that the whole NASA mission was fake based on the fact that the times did not coincide. Well, in the modern era, if you want to save fuel and you don't have astronauts on board, which are using oxygen and eating food and consumables, then you can afford to take a very, very long leisurely trajectory that in this case, if they launch successfully this morning or tomorrow morning from the Cape, they will not arrive at the moon. This is this Japanese unmanned lander mission will not arrive at the moon until April, January, February, March, April. That's four months plus, you know, however much of uh, uh, December is left. It's December 11th when they're launching early, early this morning, uh, tomorrow morning, rather. Uh, so the reason is because this saves an extraordinary amount of fuel. And with unmanned spacecraft, it doesn't matter how long it takes to get there. Remember, the journey is half the uh, uh, enjoyment. So they are taking the slow boat to China, in this case, the slow Japanese boat to the moon, and they will be added to the list of other unmanned spacecraft. Um, in fact, in a few days, on the 17th of December, the South Korean um, unmanned mission called Enjoy Moon will arrive in lunar orbit, joining the NASA CubeSat unmanned uh, mission, which uh, arrived uh, a couple of three weeks ago and is on station testing communications and other experiments for the uh, upcoming Gateway uh, Lunar Space Station, which is part of the long-range comprehensive Artemis program to return astronauts to the moon this time to stay. Because what our guys are going to do and women are going to set up a moon base. And I've seen some people say it'll take them 10 years. No, um, once they solve the problem of how expensive the SLS is. And we'll get into a lot of this tomorrow night because tomorrow night we're doing the Artemis returns from the moon. And it, it's very important that we talk about what's next because, again, like NASA has been doing, they told us they had 16 incredible cameras. Well, they've given us just a handful of pictures, and frankly, those do not measure up. Now, we've been able to apply some sophisticated techniques to improve the resolution and the uh, latitude of what's on those images. And we've got some stunning new data on the uh, so-called lunar dome, which we will laying out tomorrow night. But... Um, uh, this is just kind of a foretaste. As I said, tomorrow night when we're on the air, Artemis should successfully have splashed down off San Diego, and we should be talking about uh, uh, some legal activity in Washington, which will guarantee that we're going to see the real amazing data that the Artemis mission recorded of the moon, and NASA, for whatever reason, just has not shown us this yet. And of course, uh, that will not obtain once the current NDAA, which I've been saying for some time, um, is successfully 
um, uh, you know, made into law. In other words, it goes through the Senate and goes to the president's desk and he signs it. And then, as they used to say, uh, Katie bar the door, because that will give license to anyone in NASA who has access to the original high resolution, high definition color imagery that was taken during Artemis, but not shared with the rest of the world. It will allow them to come forward and share this with congressional committees, with other branches of government, and most critically with, under the First Amendment, the press. So I am I am going to see if, in fact, uh, what I think is waiting in the wings actually takes place. Now, as I said earlier in the show, we've got an extraordinary guest tonight. So before um, um, I give you kind of the background on what it is that we're going to be talking about, let you let me give you some background on Ray himself. Ray Tome has studied math and physics at university and then went into computer software development, specializing in software and investments. And it was through investments and trying to predict economic conditions that he found out that there were cycles and began to investigate them. This led to fascinating discoveries because in the late 1980s, he heard about the foundation for the study of cycles and visited them in 1989, speaking at their conference about towards a unified theory of cycles. After spending about a week in the FSC library before the conference, he found that much of the path he had independently traveled down had been visited before by the founder of the foundation, Edward R. Dewey, and others. Dewey confirmed what Ray had found independently, and many more areas of study opened up with interesting similar content. Ray has retired at the age of 42 to study primarily cycles and what he calls the formula for the universe full-time. Over the next several years, Ray's harmonics theory became fully formed, and Ray has now spoken about it at venues and conferences around the world. He started independently his own Cycles Research Institute when FSC temporarily went into a, a shutdown in 1998 and developed CATS, Cycles Analysis and Time Series Software for sale to the general public under the Cycles Research Institute. Later, when FSC had reconstituted itself and restarted, CRA joined with them and Ray was appointed a member of the board of directors and the director of science. So Ray Tomes, come on down. This is a conversation that I have been looking forward to for month after month after month. Hi, Richard. Nice to meet you at last. <laughs> well, I've got some surprises for you and you have some surprises for me and for the audience. So let me go back and hit a couple of high spots about the foundation for the study of cycles, because it's very important that we get a kind of a proper perspective on who these people were. So let me start with the founder, whose name was Edward R. Dewey. And the story goes, uh, as we have uh, regaled it 
on this show many times. The story goes that Herbert Hoover in uh, the late 1920s um, had employed Edward Dewey as his chief economic analyst for the Department of Commerce, carrying out assignments, you know, that the president would deem as well as the general background of the Department of Commerce. When the Great Depression hit, Hoover turned to Dewey and he basically asked him, what the hell is going on? Can you figure out from your background as, as you know, a leading economist, can you figure out, A, what's wrong, not just with the American economy, but remember, the Depression hit most governments on the planet simultaneously, which had never in history, as far as I know, had happened before. And, and basically, there was this extraordinary need to find out not only what had gone wrong, but what, in fact, could be done to fix it. So in about uh, 1931, Dewey learned that after talking with many economists all over the world asking what they thought, and there, of course, was no consensus, um, he found that there was going to be a conference on biological cycles held in Canada by uh, sponsored by a guy named Copley Amory, and that the conference. That's right. There's, there's one or two things to mention um, before that. I think he, um, uh, it, it, as I heard it, he asked a hundred different economists why why the Great Crash had happened then uh, and the depression, and he got a hundred different answers. And he said, "There's only one of them I think is right, and that's the one who said, Edward, we really don't know." Hmm. Uh, after all, if they had have known, they would have predicted it, and they didn't. So. Um, and he got another piece of advice at that time from someone is, uh, don't try to um, explain why it happens. Try to ex try to understand what happens. So he began, and that was when he started to look at cycles. And he found that if he ran the cycles uh, that existed in the economy in the 1920s forward, they did in fact predict the crash uh, oh. of 29, yeah. And, and there's a, there's a follow-up to that one. Um, Dewey died in 1978, but he published a, a very good paper called the, um, the Case for Cycles in 1967. And in that, he had the phase, amplitude, and period of a whole lot of different cycles in the American stock market. Um, now, I didn't know about that stage because I didn't find out about him until the late 80s. But in 1986, uh, I predicted there was going to be a share crash in 1987, about September. It was in October, actually, the same as the previous one. And at that time, I, um, I I was using a bunch of cycles. And when I got to the foundation um, and found um, Dewey's cycles, I ran them forwards, and they, he predicted his cycles predicted the 1987 share crash as well. So that was running them forward from 1967. So they worked 20 years ahead. That's how good his work was. Fascinating. Uh, I, I want to give some people some context because when the president of the United States and his cabinet and a lot of, you know, very influential, very wealthy people kind of all get together and create an institution and they're tasking it with finding out something as extraordinary as, you know, the, the crash of the business cycle all over the world simultaneously, which had, had not happened before. I think it's important to kind of go into some of the people at the time who were involved because 
what I what, what I'm intrigued with is how from an initial extraordinary beginning where the right people were tasked with looking, the right resources were put at their disposal, a institution was created, this this rather remarkable foundation. Some yes. some empirical answers were discovered leading obviously to the idea that there was ultimately a scientific basis for prediction of future cycles on which the world economy would depend. And then it kind of all goes away. So I, I want to, for the audience, I, I, I want to list kind of the who's who of who was involved. Then I want to talk, Ray, about why do you think that this which should have become central to human science and inspiration and research kind of disappeared under the floorboards and well, really, yeah, and, and, and I think there is a reason to that. Well, hang on, hang on. Then, let, let, oh, let, let me give, on, yeah, let me give people the background of who was involved. Uh, in addition to Dewey, who we said was the uh, uh, chief economic analyst for the Department of Commerce, there was a gentleman named Charles Greeley Abbott, who served as a Smithsonian secretary. This is the Smithsonian Institution from 1928 to 1944. Abbott was an astrophysicist working for the, the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. As the head of the solar work of variable of the Venerable Institution, he conducted extensive research in charting cyclic patterns in solar variation and the measurement of the so-called solar constant. Yes, as you say, so-called constant, yeah. Yeah, in order to better predict long-term weather patterns. Okay, there was another guy. Uh, he was the first chairman of the foundation. His name was Copley Amory. He was a yeah. businessman. Um, he was in. Uh, he was a very prominent Canadian. He studied everything from sunspots to the to the market. Um, and it was in 1930. Uh, 1940, rather, that Dewey learned of this conference and contacted uh, him and other conferees uh, and basically became part of the conference. And then they went on to jointly create the um, uh, foundation. Here's yes. another guy, George Backland. Now, the reason that's interesting is be, uh, maybe it could be pronounced Bakeland because he was vice president of the Bakelite Foundation. Now, everybody knows about Bakelite, which was one of the first general plastics created in the in the 1940s. Uh, there was a guy named Charles Campsell, who was a respected geologist and civil servant for more than 40 years. He served on the as a commissioner of Canada's Northwest Territories, appointed to the Canadian National Research Council, served as president of the Royal Society of Canada, uh, and was on the original standing committee for the foundation of the study of cycles. There was a Sir Patrick Ashley Cooper, who was a member and director of the Bank of England. There was the U.S. ambassador to Japan, uh, William Cameron Forbes. Forbes, does that name ring a bell? Then there was a the chairman of the Corning Glassworks, chairman of the Institute for the Advanced Study at Princeton, Allenson Bigelow Houghton, and of course, uh, Corning's most noted among our audience as the people that cast and created the largest telescope mirror, the 200-inch for the telescope on Mount Palomar in the 1940s. And, and finally, I mean, we have a whole bunch of extraordinary people 
and they, including ending with Harlow Shapley, who was the director of the Harvard College Observatory, who had figured out the cycles of stars and how they are determining the lifespan of late sequence stars in the Milky Way galaxy and others. You had this creme de la creme de la creme foundation with all of these incredibly prestigious uh, financiers, businessmen, scientists, philanthropists, and it all went nowhere. Ray, why? Okay, well, you're quite right. There were a lot of famous people. There were a lot of uh, good business people there. And when Dewey found about the conference in Canada, um, he got in touch uh, with Amory and he said, um, we need to form a, he told them what he was doing, we need to form a foundation to study your cycles. Within a month or two, they had done it. And all the guys that had been, and this was a decade or more after um, the other guys had last met, and so uh, it was, that was a big achievement, and they got going. And in my opinion, there's one thing that's necessary uh, to have a foundation, a cycles foundation, that works well, and that is to have both the uh, business people and the scientific people. When you have both, you have a healthy organization. When you only have one, you don't get lift off. So, um, so from that time, from 1941, I think, when they set up, or 42, through till Dewey's death, in the late 70s, um, it ran very healthily. They, they put out um, a, a regular magazine. They had speakers that could talk on all of these different subjects. And as you said, a lot of famous people in business and in science uh, were involved. Now, um, I joined um, in 1989, around about there. Um, and at that stage, the meetings were still um, had both types of people there. And that ran through in the 90s. And then somewhere um, around the mid-90s, um, I'm not going to name the person. One person got, got became the um, chief executive of the foundation. Uh, and in my opinion, he was not a healthy guy. Um, and the result of that was that they began to concentrate on trying to make money only with business cycles. Um, and that meant that the, they began to lose the scientific ones. Uh, and the result was the collapse of the foundation in the late 90s. Uh, so um, I wanted to keep it going. That's why I started Cycles Research Institute. And the foundation had another false start and conked out again before the latest one uh, on a much better footing. And um, we now have Richard Smith running it, and he's a good man, um, and a number of other guys. And they had a lot of um, market traders and such. Uh, so when I wanted to join with them, uh, and I was more on the scientific side, they were very pleased for that because they, they understood that you needed this as well. Um, and we still haven't managed to build up. A, we've got some science advisors, but um, we haven't got the large number of them that we need to be operating in a f fully healthy way at this stage. One of the big problems is I've tried to put lots of stuff about cycles into the into Wikipedia. And what, what happens? Um, there's a bunch of people... Uh, some of whom uh, haven't quite finished university yet, who think they know everything. Um, that everything they think that everything they taught is a sum total of knowledge, uh, and stuff that gets put into Wikipedia, they keep deleting it all. So, for example, I made a trip to Russia and met um, uh, Professor Afanasiev, who discovered a, a method of measuring geological ages incredibly accurately compared to what we do in the West. Uh, 
and I tried to put that material in the into Wikipedia, and people came along and deleted. Um, and when I argue about it, I, I had battles, and I was fighting too many battles, so in the end I gave up. We will. I did manage to get some things in, but not enough. Uh, so that's a major project to try and re-establish all that. And uh, it's not understood as an area of study in its own right. Um, and people aren't aware that in every branch of science, uh, people are finding cycles, but they aren't talking to each other. So they aren't aware how much there's a connection between the different ones that they find. And that's one of the things that we'll cover as we go along here, I hope. Okay. Um, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes, who is a member of the Reconstituted Foundation for the Study of Cycles, founded back in the 1940s by Edward Dewey, Chief Economic Analyst, who had been tasked by the president to find out why did the Great Depression occur? Um, this is kind of like interesting background. This is the theme from the Wild Wild West. It's going to get wild, folks. I guarantee you. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return on this Saturday night, December 10th, 2022. <laughs> The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcasters provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, on December 10th, just a few hours away from another unmanned launch to the moon. Tune in tomorrow night on our Artemis Return program to see some extraordinary new data on what is waiting for us all. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes. We're talking uh, all the way around the world to New Zealand, where Ray hangs out and conducts his uh, own foundation, the uh, Cycles Research Institute. Uh, Ray, what was it that kind of brought you into the whole idea that cycles were real and even better that you could figure them out. Yeah, well, my first uh, awareness of them was when I was a teenager, and some friends of my parents gave me uh, a subscription to Sky and Telescope magazine, and uh, I knew there was an 11-year sunspot cycle, 
but um, they published daily sunspot numbers. And I started graphing them, and after a couple of years, it was clear there was a, another cycle going on of about four months. And I hadn't heard of that one before, so I started looking at it, and I found, ah, um, four months happens to be the synodic period of Jupiter and Venus and the Sun. Every four months, the three of them make a straight okay, line. Okay, you're going to have to define synodic periods. Okay, uh, so Venus is going around fast. Every four months, Venus will either move between the Sun and Jupiter or be opposite the Sun from Jupiter. Uh, ah. And so those 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 instances mean that there's the biggest tidal effect. They are the two planets with the strongest tidal effect on the sun. And so every four months, they were doing something to the sun's tides, which was causing more sunspots. So I thought, if that's really right, I should be able to find other um, pairs of planets that, that would have moderate effect that show the same effect. And sure enough, I could. So I was a teenager then. I rode my bike into the city, looked up the books on the sun, and um, only one of them mentioned it, and it mentioned that in the 1800s, someone had uh, claimed the same thing, um, but, they, um, but they thought it was personally be disproved with time and said, ha-ha, you're wrong, it hasn't. But the other interesting thing is, in the 60s, um, the Americans wanted to send uh, a man to the, men to the moon, and they didn't want them to get tried by uh, solar flares. So they were madly studying how to predict solar flares. It turned out they found only one thing that worked well, and that was the alignment of the planets. Up till then, no one wanted to look at it because it sounds like astrology, but it's not, it's physics. So, um, so that was my first um, meeting of cycles. Later on, when I started working, um, I began doing work for the investments department at a, at a um, company in New Zealand, and um, it's clear there were cycles in the stock market, and so I began to try and work out how to uh, predict those, um, sort of as a part-time hobby, and that gradually developed over a period of years uh, until in the um, um, in the 80s, uh, I began to work significantly on it, and it happens that um, you can make some predictions. And I, I did some, and then I came across um, Dewey's work uh, when I visited the foundation in 1989. What was, um, what was the reason that you visited the foundation? Well, which came first, your interest in cycles or visiting um, the institute? What, my interest in the cycles came first, um, and as a result of that, um, there was an American guy by the name of Lane who did um, uh, stock markets and other markets. He gave a talk here um, and I went along to that and he mentioned the foundation of the study of cycles. So I quickly noted that down. Um, and within a year I was uh, at their next conference and um, finding out that there was a massive material there. Like I'd done a lot of, I'd done a lot of work on my own, um, but the work that had been done by uh, um, the foundation like was, you know, more than 10 times, maybe a hundred times what I'd done. Uh, and the amount of data they had and the records they had was so much greater. But um, there was great agreement between what I had found and what had been found by Dewey and others. Um, shall we go through some of this material? So, well, let, let me quote this one here from Dewey. Well, ha hang on one second. I want to oh, tell yeah, people, sorry, if, yeah, yeah. If, if you want to connect to the foundation for the study of cycles, you go to my item number four. 
which will take you to the entire website. And it's going to take you a while to kind of prowl around and poke around. Yeah. You'll find archives of the magazines, research papers, uh, graphs, documents. Uh, my item number five is the the founders. Because, again, what impressed me was this started at such a high level of people who are insiders. And the idea that you can be blown away by stupid idiots on Wikipedia who are pretending, because I think they're pretending, they know there's something uh, there, yeah. and they are designated hitters designed to stamp out burning ducks. Now, the reason I know yeah. this, <clears throat> several years ago, a brilliant uh, Canadian um, amateur uh, uh, computer guy developed some software to track basically the people who were posting the most remarkable hit pieces on Wikipedia, and he chose me as his kind of uh, you know model and it turned out that the people that were taking off the stuff on, on my Wikipedia entry were based at NASA headquarters. And they were operating 24-7 oh, yeah. to try to get people to think that Hoagland's a nut. He's an idiot. He's too far yeah. out. He's crazy. There's nothing on Mars, nothing on the moon. And the people who were logging on and doing this, according to this guy's software, were traceable right back to NASA headquarters. So I would imagine the same kind of organized effort, considering the extraordinary import of the idea of cycles as a science covering every activity in the environment, the biosphere, and human endeavor, there's someone working very hard, not amateurs, yeah. but paid professionals to keep yeah. anybody from taking cycles research seriously, seriously. decades yeah. after One of the, the creme de la creme accepted it and asked, how do we find out how it works? Yeah, one of the one of the things that always joked is uh, in the in the business area is, oh, he's studying sunspots. <laughs> uh, now that's um, that's to try and make people not go down that path. Um, it's worth mentioning that um, two of the very rich families, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, one from the 1800s and the other from the early 1900s, studied two uh, important cycles. One's the 18-year cycle in real estate, um, and as a result, the uh, Empire State Building was uh, built during the cheapest possible time to build a building. And the other one was they were following the 40-month cycle, uh, which is in um, stock prices, but it's also in what we used to call consoles and stuff. It's um, interest rates for um, short-term um, deposits and things. So so those people have known those things for a long time, and that may tie up with what you're saying, that some people don't want everybody to know this. Well, it's always the case of inside versus outside, and those that have knowledge, yeah. knowledge is power. If you can keep the great unwashed from having the same power that you do, then you control yeah. them. They don't control you, even in a so-called democracy. Okay, let's get into some of the specifics, because the thing that has fascinated me when I found out about the Hoover-Dewey story is that Dewey, who was a brilliant economist, was broad enough in terms of bandwidth to look outside his comfort zone, to look yeah. at something That's as remarkably diverse as cycles in yeah. the natural world, and that's where he found gold. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I don't think he um, – well, I think he was um, prepared to look widely. 
uh, some of the conclusions he came to, I think, took a while, especially that to recognise that some of these influences came from beyond the earth. I think he arrived at reluctantly. Um, well, I he, think um, I, I think there's a quote where he basically like the two good, you know, English of uh, English of uh, uh, Yankees from Connecticut who brought yeah. meteorites to Thomas Jefferson, and and Jefferson said to them, "I would rather." believe the two good gentlemen from Connecticut would lie that stones fall from heaven. From the sky. Yes, I yes, think yes. that Dewey was so antagonistic to the idea of astrology that he yes, never yes. really became comfortable with the idea that astrology and all the other cycles are part of a larger universe of unified field and cyclic forces. Just, just on a random note there, uh, there's a book called The Book of the Damned by Charles Fort. Charles Fort. Uh, know it well. Yeah. I, 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 you know him. Well, yeah, he wrote yeah. this incredible book, you know, and, and it's got it's got basically it's Something a comp- falling from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, it is a compilation of newspaper reports of all kinds of anomalies. And yes. if, if you want to cast a wide net, uh, Fort Fort is a very good place to, to, to yeah. start. There's a fellow named Corliss who who published a whole series William of books. William Corliss, yes, 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 and that's um, that is a, a a rich mine for anyone who wants to find out about unusual phenomena, but scientifically verified. He, um, he is kind of the modern follow-on to Charles Fort. Yes, yes, yeah. So just what those are worth mentioning along the way, I think. Um, so where do we so want to dive in, 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 into Dewey? Because we've got a lot of material to go through. We have. So there's one quote problem. There is considerable evidence that there are natural environmental forces that alternately stimulate and depress mankind in the mass. These same forces may also affect plant and animal life, weather, and even normally unchanging things such as chemical reactions. Now, that's, um, it's, it's, um, it's a little bit mind-blowing. Um, when I visited, I visited Russia, I got from them data on radioactive decay, and I can show you that there's cycles in radioactive decay, and they're also related to these chemical reactions and all these other things as well. See, hang on, so hang on, hang on, hang on. on. The, the, this, is, yeah. this, is, this is Hollywood sign high news, because since yes. Libby in the 1940s, we've been told that radioactive decay is it's immutable. Random that it yeah. follows an absolutely immutable clock. Therefore, you can use it to probe back in time billions of years with accuracy. Yep. And what you're saying, and what, of course, I know separately, is radioactive decay constants vary all over the map. Yeah. And no one knows why. Yeah. Um, I, I might have some clues about that. <laughs> so might I. Um some of the uh, – um, I recommend the, the, the Case for Cycles by Edward R. Dewey. You can find it on cyclesresearchinstitute.org. Uh, I recommend um, this – if people just get one thing, get that. Um, and and uh, so I've got some graphs from there. I've got some quotes from there. Um, and it's a, it's a gold mine because it's a distillation of Dewey's work. He, he cut it down to the minimum uh, amount that he could to give the flavor of it all. Um, to put it across. Now, if you want um, to find the Cycles Research Institute, which is Ray's Institute for Studying the Science, uh, it's right at the top of his bio. So click on where it says Fast Links to Bios 
on the Radio with Pictures page. Click on Ray. That will take you to his bio right at the top, HTTPS colon, et cetera, CyclesResearchInstitute.org. Right. Very good. Thank you, Richard. So one of the graphs from there, uh, I think this one is one of the most spectacular ones, is, is the graph of the uh, Canadian lynx. Um, they've got data going back to the 1700s, um, 1740s, and they, um, these have been trapped for their fur. Um, and the, the population, as best they can estimate from how many they could catch, roughly multiplies by 10 and divides by 10 over a period of 9.6 years. And it continues to do that decade after decade after decade. So um, now it, it has been said that this is probably a predator-prey cycle because a similar thing happens to the snowshoe rabbit. However, there are a bunch of other animals that have no connection with those, for example, trout in the Atlantic and 10 caterpillars in America, um, that also show the same cycle. And even humans show a bit of a cycle. Um, it's um, the amount of heart attacks people have does uh, fit in with the cycle also. So um, the only thing that's connected to it that appear in other animal populations is um, ozone. So it's possible that ozone plays some part in what happens there. You mean ozone coming from the ozone layer somehow reaching the ground being inhaled and causing uh, this? I, I, I think probably in the ozone layer, I'm not sure. It may be effective what gets through. Is it possible? And we're going to get into this in detail later on. And by the way, yeah. Ray, Ray's going to be coming back for another show where we're going to talk specifically about his harmonics theory to explain the cycles that we're going to talk about tonight, as well as much larger cycles in the universe as a whole. Yeah. So tonight we're going to do empirical data because all science begins in data. Exactly. We agreed on that. And the, uh, um, Dewey had this system which, where he, remember, uh, most of his work was done before uh, there were um, computers in wide use. Um, so we have to remember that. And it wasn't easy. And so he had teams of um, housewives. Housewives were cheaper in those days. So these days you're not allowed to do that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and so uh, he had them writing down long strings of numbers and doing arithmetic with them. And stuff. Well, they did the same um, thing in all the major uh, colleges like Harvard and Yale or whatever, right. except they called, they called them computers, even though yeah, they were right. really <laughs> scientists, and they did all the numerical calculations by hand with adding machines because computers were non-existent at that level. So they used a whole bunch of human beings, primarily female, call them yeah. calculators. And this then migrated into NASA. Remember John Glenn's story, how he wouldn't leave the ground in, in, in case one black calculator, one black woman did the calculations yeah. for his orbit? Oh, yes, she was amazing, wasn't she? She sure yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So played a part in all of that. Um, so um, real estate activity shows a very clear 18-year cycle over a long period. This is item number four in Ray section. Yeah. Um, and there's other ones. There's um, um, a three-month cycle in um, in the trends of sales of one company goes on year after year after year. Um, this is item number five. Yeah. And then um, he, he, he mentions a few things that happened. For example, um, there's one here uh, showing um, 
that one. Um, Are we talking number six now? Pig iron. Yeah, pig iron. Um, okay. And so, uh, and it goes, it goes, it goes all ski with in the um, early thirties. Well, let's uh, let's, let's not skip over these again. because this is really interesting. The chart is, shows yeah. the yearly rate of change in pig iron production from yeah. January 1901 to December 1940. That's a big swath of data. 41, yeah. uh, large a large amount of data, together with a diagram yeah. of a perfectly regular. 41 yes. month cycle. Note that a after. month cycle is, is uh, an important one. We'll come back to that. Um, it's, and it goes, all, goes badly wrong in the early 30s. Um, but then it does a bit of a catch up and then it comes back into phase again. Now, when we get to Dewey's rules about the cycles, we'll find that that's covered in his rules as one of the important things. Well, that indicates, just you know, from a layman's perspective, that whatever is driving cycles in very diverse, different fields, you know, biological systems, uh, sales prices, production quotas in corporations, there's some background common force. Something is driving the system, yes. and it's showing up in these variables that are visible, but they're just yes. like leaves riding on the current. It's what's uh, driving the current. We want to find yes. out. Absolutely, yeah. And now here's a list uh, of the different areas they found cycles in natural sciences. This is, this is number seven. Yeah, and there's great lists of different things. I'm not going to read them all out. There's far too many. Um, now I, I would have only studied a fraction of that many, but um, uh, I was coming to the same conclusion. And then um, this, the next the next graph. I've done from four months through to 64 years, and I put one one dot there for every report of the cycle. Now, this is based on Dewey's reports, uh, the reports of the foundation. Um, okay, this is, see, this is number nine of your items. Yeah, and, and you can see there's certain periods, for example, four months and eight months, also two years, 3.4 years, just under six years, and so on, uh, 18 years, 54 years, that pop up over and over again. They're very common ones. So we'll come back to that, um, why they, what they are and why. This is the Dewey's table that he did, which shows a lot of the common cycles. He started from 17.75 years, and then he doubled it to get 35.5, doubled it to get 71, and he halved it to get 8.88 and halved to get 4.44. Oh, 4. So this is and number 10. Multiple. This is number 10. Yeah, and he multiplied by three to get 53.3, divided by three to get 5.92, and so on. Now, this is the interesting bit because I had a little table of my own. It was a bit different to this, but in essence, I had a 4.45-year cycle compared to Dewey's 4.44. I had a 35.6-year multiple of the other cycles compared to Dewey's 35.5. I had a 5.9-year compared to his 5.92. And you can see, so you can see when I saw this table, I went, hello, hello. Um, I, Dewey has been finding the same stuff Well, you me, know what but, this looks like. This looks uh, like, in music theory, we call it harmonics and yeah, subharmonics. Yes, that's right. It's, Pythag it's called Pythagoras' lambda. He never mentions Pythagoras in this, as far as I can see, but he must have been aware that it's Pythagoras' table. You mean Dewey doesn't mention Pythagoras? So, so that's the... Um, but at that point... Um, 
at that point, no one could ever convince me again that what I had found wasn't real. Dewey was using different data from different countries in a different time period to what I was using and coming up with the same answers. So to me, that meant this is a real thing that's really going on and it's very substantial. It's why, don't, why, why don't you read his conclusions in number 11? Uh, is there a conclusion there? Well, everything studied by man that yeah, can yeah. be made into a time series has cycles yeah. attached to oh, it. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm reading. Yeah, this is number 12. Yeah. Every, yeah every, everything studied by man that can be made into a time series has cycles in it. He, he said he didn't find Actually, anything. Actually, on my, on my list, it's number, number 11. Yeah. Um, there are common cycles periods that exist in many seemingly unrelated fields of study. These cycles with common periods exhibit cycle synchrony, meaning that they reach their peaks and their troughs at the same time. Even though they're not anywhere possibly connected. Yeah. So it's staggering, isn't it? Many of the commonly reported cycles exhibit simple ratios of two and three and their products between them. The observed cycles that fit these patterns are outside the Earth. Bingo. So those those things there say, okay, something's going on, and it's big. Very big. Now, I've put a little thing here. I've done a little chart um, of um, 5,000 year timeline of cycles events. Okay, this is number 12 on your page. Yes. Uh, that's number, yeah, okay, my number 15, but anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, I've just started with Stonehenge, sort of like 2500 BC onwards. Um, they were working out the cycles, and they worked out uh, the cycle of eclipses, and they could predict eclipses. By 1700 BC, they could predict eclipses. They, they were not the only people doing this. It was happening all over the world. People were making these sort of things to study the motions of the sun and the moon and working it all out. Um, Hindus um, had stuff going through a long period there, and around the period of 600 BC, the Hindus and Buddhists had a lot of cycles, and they and they, they the Greeks learned from them, and they carried it on as well. Um, and again, we should probably put in there um, the Muslim ones around 600 AD. They mm. were looking at that stuff too. Now, come to um, the 1500s, 1600s. We have in rapid succession Galileo, Kepler, and Newton. We could put Copernicus in there as well. Uh, but Newton, uh, that Kepler worked out the elliptical nature of planets' orbits and all of that, and Newton worked out why that all happened in terms of gravity. So um, that, those were big advances. In the, in the next century or two, we had um, uh, Herschel, Jevons, and Juggler. They were economists, um, and they were studying markets and things and prices and commodities and all of that. Following that, in the 1900s, we had Dewey, Wheeler, and Chizewski. Now, Dewey and Wheeler were in America, and Chizewski was in, uh, um, in Russia. So, so I've got a picture here of the, the two of those, Dewey and Chizewski. To my mind, they were the, well, those three were the first interdisciplinary cycles researchers, which is, so I model myself after that to be an interdisciplinary cycles researcher. Um, the first mention of harmonically related cycles, uh, Schumpeter was one of these economists. Um, the Kondratiev cycle was 54 years, the Kuznets cycle was 18 years, and the Juglar cycle was 9 years. So we notice 54 divided by 3 gives 18, 18 divided by 2 gives 9. There was a, a, a 40 or 41 month cycle 
the kitchen cycle. Uh, it didn't fit into the other one, so that was not harmonically related as far as anyone could tell. So that's, um, but um, so Dewey mentions those. Um, he began to find his own pattern, but um, he decided he's got to have a proper basis to all of this. And so he, he said, I'm indebted to Professor Richard P. Feynman, theoretical physicist of the California Institute of Technology at Pasadena, for the basic structure of the article. Professor Feynman once said to me, now, for those who don't know, Feynman is probably the most famous American physicist. Um, and so he was a good man to go to. After Einstein, of course. Oh, oh well, we didn't, well, we didn't call him an American, but he did end up settling there, of course, yeah. Uh, in regards to cycles, the proper scientific assumption to start with is that they are chance. If they cannot reasonably be chance, the next assumption should be that they are caused within the phenomenon of the system of which the phenomenon is an interacting part. Only if a cycle cannot be the result of chance or endogenous causes should we undertake to postulate external or exogenous causes. This formula of Professor Feynman's has constituted the basic philosophy of the foundation from that day to this, is the framework around which the following paper has been built. That's the case for Cycles paper. So um, now um, I, I would get, when I was putting stuff in Wikipedia, I would get rubbish by people for this nonsense and stuff. And I said, well, I said, it was all written by a man who took solid advice from Richard Feynman. You're going to disagree with Feynman? <laughs> that usually shut them up. Um, so away, away we went. Yeah, yeah, the problem, Ray, with that is you're playing to the, to the choir of authority. Just because a well-known yeah. guy says something doesn't make it true. Absolutely agree. But in fact, Feynman was right about that. Well, when he says in his first line, in regard to cycles, the proper scientific assumption to start with is their chance, except yeah. we're surrounded in a universe where everything is cyclic. The moon goes yeah, around right. the earth, we go around the sun, we go around the yeah. galaxy, you know, uh, the atoms have specific frequencies, the electron spins around the proton, you know, in terms of the wave theory at certain numbers of cycles. In other words, we're, we're surrounded by cycles why would Feynman reject out of hand yeah. the idea he, that a cycle might be real? I think he was trying to give uh, Dewey the means to say these are real, you know, say um, they can't be can't. Um, I agree with you. I look at everything and everything I see as cycles and often the longest to the shortest. Um, some of the longest cycles are extremely long. Um, and you're familiar with the short ones because you studied the physics. Um, when you study geology, you find there's some very, very long ones as well. Absolutely. Um, okay, we are coming up to the top of the hour. So let's tease them with something really interesting for when we come back. Oh, okay, yes. I will come back, yep. Okay, we got a couple of minutes here, so. Um, okay, we'll give them this one. The case for cycles. The argument for the existence of these forces runs something like this. Almost everything fluctuates. Many things fluctuate in cycles or waves. Many of these waves are spaced very regularly and have other characteristics that indicate the spacing cannot reasonably be chance. Non-chance spacing must, by the meaning of words, have a cause. This cause must be internal, dynamic, or interacting, feedback or predator prey, or external. In excellent, excellent. Let's hold it there. A force of some sort. In many instances, this force cannot reasonably We are at the top of the hour. Sorry, Ray. The clock is implacable. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll get back to Ray Tomes and the theory, really, of everything in the cycles 
around us. on this Saturday night, December 10th, 2022. Just a couple, three weeks now to the end of, of 22. Wow. What a year. But 2023 is going to be even more intriguing. I guarantee it, depending upon what the president signs in the next three weeks. Stay tuned. We may have more news on that front tomorrow night. My guest this morning is Ray Holmes. He is a uh, board member and the science director of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. He heads his own Cycles Research Institute. He came at this, the idea that cycles exist in all kinds of absolutely unrelated fields of environment, biological, cosmic, and human behavior and activity. And that led him into proposing a synoptic model, which we'll get into toward the end of the show, and then we'll do a full show on the physics underlying the cycles of science and life on Earth. But for now, let's get back to his recitation of what Dewey found, member of the chief economic analyst that President Herbert Hoover in the depths of the Great Depression said, somewhat in desperation, for God's sake, can you figure out what the hell is going on? Ray? This is my favorite Edward Dewey quote. Uh, Insofar as cycles are meaningful, all science that has been developed in the absence of cycle knowledge is inadequate and partial. Thus, if cycles forces are real, any theory of economics or sociology or history or medicine or climatology that ignores non-chance rhythms is manifestly incomplete, as medicine was before the discovery of germs. Now, that's a very strong statement, and it's also very true. Uh, And yet, none of those areas 
have recognised cyclic forces as applying to their field outside from outside their field. Go ahead. Sorry. And so, uh, so they've um, so no one has learned from that. That was said in 1967. Here we are, 55 years later, and none of those areas are operating in the light. They are working in the dark, as medicine was before the discovery of germs. So it's a sad indictment, really, isn't it? Well, doesn't that strike you as there's either one or two explanations? Either people are really damn dumb and stupid, even those insiders, those you know oligarchs, the creme de la creme of science, people like Harlow Shapley, the guy who was head of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, you know, people like Forbes, or their initial interest and efforts to create an institution to do research and figure it out and make it available to the country and then the world somehow got suppressed. And I vote for, unfortunately, uh, the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does make a lot of sense in terms of the experiences I've had. I try not to think that way, but you may well be right, I suspect. Well, unless you understand who the enemy is, you can't avoid yeah. the enemy. You can't mount a successful counterattack unless you know yeah. you're being attacked and B, who's attacking you and why. And I think yeah. because this is such a synoptic science, it explains incredibly disparate phenomenon from the lynx migrations to the changes in radioactive decay rates. I mean, can you imagine if nuclear physics is not what we've been told? It no. may be, Ray, that on a given Tuesday, if the Russians, if Putin wants to launch a nuke, he can't do it because the damn thing won't explode. Is he reading Bruce Cathy? Yeah. So this is not an academic study. This has fundamental core insights into every known field of science yeah. and human it endeavor, does. and we've got yeah. to figure it out. So this is another quote. This one's from Alexander Chizewski, the Russian equivalent to uh, Edward Dewey. Life is a phenomenon. Its production is due to the influence of the dynamics of the cosmos on a passive subject. It lives due to dynamics. Each oscillation of organic pulsation is coordinated from the cosmic heart in a grandiose whole of nebulous stars, the sun, and the planet. Now, uh, I love this, particularly the bit about a passive subject. What he's saying is, um, we are the passive subject, right? We think that we are active. We think that we are the causes of things, but we're not. We're just, we're just a little... A little thing, I think you called it dance, leaves dancing in the wind or something like that, did you? Something like that. That's what we're doing. Floating on the stream. Floating on the stream, yeah. Now, that's, the same thing occurs in the ancient Hindu ideas, uh, that they understand that that's what goes on. So um, um, I think Chizewski was more, he's a bit more poetic in that. I mean, Dewey was more of a practical man, but what Dewey said is very clear and very sharp and um, what was what was what was Chizewski's background? And for those that want to look him up, it's C H I Z H E V S K Y. Alexander yeah. um, Chizewski. Yeah. Um, well, he had a difficult life because he was doing this in the time when the um, communists had taken over, and um, you weren't allowed to say that cycles caused things to happen or um, long or far away influences uh, because 
everything that happened was caused by the struggle of the working class. Um, and whenever he said up something other than that, uh, he did get arrested for a time and spent some time jail. He did end up running away to France at the end so he could talk more freely. Um, um, yeah. But another very great man. Him and him and Dewey are the two, um, followed by uh, Raymond Wheeler, who um, was almost in their category as well. Um, he's worth studying as well. Were either men aware of the other's research? Yes. Um, uh, Dewey did, um, Czeski did a study on wars. Now, this is a confusing one because both Czeski and Wheeler appear to have done a study of 2,500 years of wars and the cycles in them. Uh, and so I don't know who did it first. I'm suspecting it's Chizewski, um because he's the one that uh, that Dewey used um, and he did a number of articles about that. So they were in touch, yes. Hmm. Because I have a very famous uh, Russian scientist named Nikolai Kozarev, who has formed the basis for my hyperdimensional oh. physics model to explain these cycles at a fundamental etheric level. And what um, uh, Nikolai did is he did all kinds of experiments where he not only discovered cycles, but he found ways to replicate the drivers in the laboratory so he could create a technology that would basically impel physical forces into outside, you know, phenomenon and objects in a way that was reproducible. So he was able to extrapolate from observing the natural cycles to creating a means of harnessing them to accomplish human ends. Yeah. And he wound up in the gulag because the communists, Stalin attacked him and put him away in prison until the 1950s when he came out after, I mean, he was a very famous astronomer. He discovered volcanism on the moon among other things which is in all the open literature, but his work on cycles and the physics, what he calls torsion field physics, has come under yeah. attack by the by the uh, Russian Communist Party, just like uh, your friend Chuzevsky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's... Um, there does seem to be a, a worldwide depression, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you may be right, yeah. Yeah, it's worth looking at, isn't it? I would think. Now, I, I mentioned Dewey's table. He started from 17.75 years. I had a slightly different figure. I, I've, my favorite figure now for that is 17.79 years. Not much difference. Um, if I jump slightly ahead here, no, let's do it this way. Um, there's a bunch of cycles around that 17.75 years a bit bigger and a bit smaller that are in proportion, musical proportions, twos and threes. There's a whole lot of them. Um, and these are found in many different things. Um, but would, this be, would this be the item you're calling harmonically related cycles, number 18? That's right, yeah. Okay. And so um, one of the things is there's a 2.22 year cycle, a 4.44 year cycle, and so on. If we look in the next row up, we see a 11.12 year cycle, 22.2 year, 44.48 year. Oh, that now, sounds familiar. Yeah, those are the sunspot cycles, yes, 11.1 yes. and 22.2. Now, um, Terry knew about those cycles, and he had a 2.22, and so he had these other things. So 
Um, although he had proportions of twos and threes, he, I can't believe he didn't notice that 22.24 is five times 4.48. So, um, but he doesn't mention it. Um, now, he may not have noticed this other one because ratios are five are easy because five times two is 10 and you just move the decimal point. But in the, there's some shorter cycles in the bottom level of that. Um, and um, this 0.4237 year one um, is also called 154 for 155 day cycle. Um, I discovered that back in, when I was doing the analysis of the uh, sunspot cycles um, when I was a teenager. Uh, but it's about, the, it's not long after that, it's in the 80s that, that people began to publish papers on like, these different periods down here. And a bunch of those have appeared in um, uh, solar, various different solar studies. When you uh, say down here, you mean in New Zealand? Uh, no, down in the bottom of the graph. Oh, oh okay. Okay. The chart. okay. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, so um, there's, as we go along that row, there's one of 1.695 years, which I did happen to find in wheat prices, and there's one of 3.389 years. Um, they, these are all doublings as we go up. Now, the thing about that one is, if you multiply that by seven, you get 23.72 years, um, and that's intimately linked um, to these other economic cycles. Um, now, 3.389 years is 60.67 um, months. Dewey got 60.68 months um, for his um, cycle in the stock market. and. Um, that's happened many, many times. Uh, I used to keep in touch with the guy that uh, was running the foundation at one stage before its first collapse, and I said to him, oh, I don't get 40.68 months, I get 40.67. He says, it's a very funny thing. He says, I just redid the analysis using more, more new data, and that's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, science is always approximate. You get better and better at it, but it... Yeah, that's right, yeah. So um, um, that one does connect into these others and it connects into these longer ones. Now, when we get to the harmonic theory later, um, I put a lot of these periods in um, to the analysis. Uh, anything that was commonly reported, I put in. And these go on up, you'll see I've got a 586 million year cycle, uh, which uh, the geologists in the West say there's about a 600 million year cycle and a 300 million and 150 million and a 74 and a 37. But uh, when when we look at it, um, we can get some. Oh, the Russians got um, Professor Afanasiev got a 586.24 million year cycle. He measured it vastly more accurately using his method, which he calls nanocycles method. Now, as you're aware, but a lot of people won't be, the moon is gradually getting further away from the Earth because of tidal action, um, and that. Um, so at this time, there's a 9.3 year. Uh, cycle of the lunar nodes. It's 18.6 years, but either node can do it, so it's, 80, it's 9.3 as well. And But as you go back uh, millions of years, that period was different. Uh, it keeps on changing. So they're not constant cycles, they're gradually shifting ones. And when you do those, it turns out that uh, you can um, tell how old a uh, geological deposit is by measuring the different cycles present in it and looking them up in Professor Arsenasius' table, and it will tell you how old the deposit is. And it's phenomenally accurate, um, um, at least 10 times more accurate than other methods that they use. So 
that, that one there is a taste of things to come more than anything. Now, where are we? We're up to number 19, I think. Science of Prediction. Uh, now, this is in a book by Edward R. Dewey and Edwin Dakin. Now had hundreds of well-established cycles and thousands of allegations of other cycles to be restudied and re-evaluated. Period groups at certain definite wavelengths. Things that have the same wavelength turn up at about the same time. Cycles keep on coming through after discovery and then distorted return to the original timing. Cycles go back continuously for hundreds of thousands of years. In fact, they have left their imprint on rock strata that are millions of years old. Well, we just mentioned that. Uh, a, a new science is taking form beneath our hands and eyes. The new vistas invite exploration almost daily. Things are moving so fast and so favorably that it is difficult to keep pace with them. We are not there yet, but things have been pretty well rough-hewn, and except for cause, the discovery of which is a mere matter of time, our mosaic is fairly well complete. But much remains to be done, and I have no desire to join Tycho Brahe until the great cycle of mystery has been resolved. Unfortunately for him, he did. Mm. However, my desires count for little in the matters of God, and it is not destined for me to carry this quest through to final the victory. It is my earnest prayer that somewhere there is another Kipler. <laughs> Perhaps it will be you. Perhaps it will be you who someday will run his fingers down a row of figures in a computation performed by Dewey in 1941, 1944, 1958, and 1978 and say, here, here is your answer. The solution of our mystery is near at hand, requiring only much hard work and time. Time I have lived with that word for the better part of my life. I have measured time. I have cut it into chunks. I have turned back time to explore pulsations, long ago silence. I have projected time into the future. So this is still, I cannot hold it back and there is so much yet to be accomplished. Now, um, this is sort of him dreaming, his dream of how it's to be. Now, um, when the um, new chap, uh, who is relatively new, uh, Richard Smith, um, took control of the Cycles Foundation a few years ago, um, his first ambition was to reestablish Cycles to how it was, how do we got it? Um, and to be fair, uh, in some areas we're ahead, but in other areas we're still well behind. We don't have all these thousands of instances and so on. I began to do the same thing with Cycles Research Institute, but uh, I didn't have enough people helping me. So I did a lot, but not enough, and I'm getting old and feeble, and so it uh, doesn't all happen. Anyway. <laughs> you're not um, feeble. Believe, believe me, Ray, you're not feeble. Well, I'm getting that way. Um, I can't do the complicated maths I need to do to do my next steps. Um, it, it's, um, you know, I believe I believe there's a solution. Um, at some point, we'll we'll do a chart. Um, I found it in a John Gribben book. Are you familiar with John Gribben? John who? Gribben. He's, he's a scientist. Um, he wrote a lot of stuff around about, I'm not sure, the 70s maybe. Um, oh, John, 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 John Gribben. I think he's, in, he's a, a Britisher, I believe. He might be, yeah. He, he did a book called something like The Jupiter Effect. Yes, uh, yes, that, that was him, John, John, John Gribben. He came unstuck because um, he predicted something that didn't happen. Um, but that doesn't um, detract from the fact that he did some good work and he presented a lot of stuff in a nice way. And one chart that he predicted had a triangle. Now, I'm going to have to describe this uh, because we haven't got a picture of it. Uh, if we start on the 
halfway up a page on the left-hand side, and we run diagonally up to the right, and diagonally down to the right from there. And then we can join the, the, the corners of that and make a big triangle, right? Now, that thing going diagonally up to the right, um, that is a, a relationship where um, energy is proportional to um, mass. Well, we can, it's, um, it's basically the black hole limit, right? So nothing can go above that line, the black hole limit of the universe. The one running down to the right um, is the um, quantum mechanics limit. Um, and that's, so one is based on E equals H nu, the other one is based on E uh, equals MC squared. Um, and they meet at the, on the left at uh, the, um, what's that called? Is it the, not the Planck dimension, the, uh, somewhat, one of those famous fellows dimension. Uh, you know, I, 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 I think it was Max Planck. Planck, yeah. Um, Which is 10 to the minus 33rd centimeters, I believe. Yeah, you're, that's, you're on the run. And 10 to, yeah, that's right. Yep. And 10 to the minus 23 seconds. 33 so that, centimeters. It, well, it's 33, well, 33 and 1 and 23 and the other centimeters and seconds, yeah. Um, so that's, um, it's a very useful chart because when you start to put everything in it, it starts to show um, all sorts of relationships um, that weren't, that aren't very, weren't, people didn't perhaps notice entirely before. You can see powers, of, um, you can see um, the size of things squared, the size of things cubed. You can see that, that things tend to line up um, with densities that are 10 to the 13 times as much as each other. If you think about, we, we have a lot of stuff around about the density of water. And if, if you look at stuff like 10 to the 13 density and, and 10 to the 26, they are found in things, I think it's 10 to the 13, the density of a, um, of a, um, white dwarf, I'm not sure what are those, and then you can go the other way and you get get other things that are related to the universe. Anyway, that diagram um, can be used to show um, the three main um, things that are ruling in their own area. Um, the, the diagonal up to the right is where general relativity rules, right? Gravity is the, the thing. The one going down to the right is where quantum mechanics rules. Um, and coming from the right, the far right, coming across is where harmonic theory rules. So these are the three, this is the tripod of the universe, if you like. Um, and people have tried to say to me, well, if you, I, I say the Big Bang's wrong. I say I've got no arguments with general relativity or with quantum mechanics. Um, they, um, well, I've got the odd argument with them, but um, in, in essence, the calculations are correct. So we go from there. But... Um, well, yeah, you know there's there, the, you know there's a cyclic variation on the Big Bang theory, right? Well, there yeah, people speculate about this at times. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, 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 there's higher universes, multidimensional, and the Big Bang has a cycle, and it's called the Brand theory or Brain theory. Multiple yeah. uh, other dimensions which bump into each other, creating uh, these singularities that erupt as new universes and they do it yeah. on a cycle. So it's like the cycles are fractal. They get you bigger must, and bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. Yeah, yeah. So do you know, happen to know any one of those cycles? Say again? Happen to know the length of any one of those cycles? Well, the last time that the universe, our universe was born was 13.7 billion years ago. 
but I well, don't yeah. remember whether we're kind of at the yeah. beginning of the cycle, mid-cycle. I mean, for this, we might have to look into uh, the Vedic literature where they deal with numbers yeah. that are staggeringly larger than any of yeah, our cosmologists. Do. Yeah, and the Buddhist literature too. Well, I have my own way of doing that. Um, harmonic theory predicts a particular pattern of um, cycles periods. And there's lots of ratios in two and three, like Dewey had in his table. Uh, and and um, what he didn't have in his table, there was a ratio of seven to the next group and five to the previous group. But if we go up to the longest cycles, we find when we calculate the whole pattern, um, and this, the calculations I've done are available on my webpage, ray.tomes.biz, uh, and you can find uh, the um, a file called something dot something dot csv. Have you? Excuse me, but have you? Created a graph showing this? Um, not a graph. It's a, ta it's a table. Oh, there are some graphs here. If you go to okay, what well, we need to do this. is you need to send Keith after the show a copy, yep. and we'll post it as number twenty for you. Okay, I'll just put here in the comments now. Yeah, Ray is typing in the Skype window. That's my that's my website. Uh, within that. Uh, on the front page, which is never updated, um, it's pretty old, uh, you will find a CSV file which has got the very commonly calculated harmonics, um, and you can do some nice stuff with that. Um, is this all ava the, also available at the website, the Cycles Research Institute? Um, no, there's a lot of stuff on there. Uh, on, my, on my old website there, there's a page called, if you add to that, slash maths.html, um, that has um, a discussion of the maths of the harmonic theory. Do you want to um, make this uh, public? Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's ray.tomes, T-O-M-E-S dot B-I-Z, as in zebra. And we will add that to your uh, bio under the... Uh, yeah, that's good, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you will find in there the calculations... Uh, comparing the CSV file I mentioned, uh, all the all the periods of cycles calculated by that, uh, then compared to all the commonly observed cycles, um, and there's one value that fits extremely well to what the cycle of the universe is, and it's not 14 billion years; it's 1.4 times 10 to the 23 years. In other words, 10 million million times longer. And well, the so-called Big Bang is just from the last event. It doesn't mean you're yeah. anywhere near the full cycle. In other words, yeah. if, if, we, if we compare those two numbers, what it says is we're at the beginning of an immense cycle. Like, you oh, know, no, what it says is the Big Bang is wrong. Uh, I don't believe there's any Big Bang. Um, the, the red shift is being misinterpreted. Um, there's a guy named Nalaka who was a friend of Fred Hoyle's, and they did some work. Um, and in that work, he said um, the the chain the red shift is an illusion because um, what we're doing is we're seeing distant galaxies as they were long ago when their light was bluer. Sorry, when their light was redder, they get gradually getting bluer all the time. There's actually a blue shift with time, not a red shift with distance, and it looks the same. Um, and when you first look at it, but when you start studying it, you find it can't be that way. So, so that's a whole area we could talk about next time. But um, in my opinion, 
are you are you aware are you aware of a colleague of uh, Fred Hoyle named Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh? Yeah, sure. Yes. Chandra has been a, a, a guest on this show many, many, many times, and yeah. we've discussed the steady state model as opposed to the Big Bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And later on, Fred actually got onto uh, a, a, a many bang sort of thing, right? Um, multiple um, yep, yep, creation multiple. events, he called them. Yep. Uh, and that's that's very consistent with the uh, harmonics theory. Uh, in the harmonics theory, you've got many cycles running uh, simultaneously, and they've got ratios between them. So what happens is every so often, a whole bunch of cycles come together, like they did in 1929, crash, bang, um, and um, you get a mighty clang then when a whole lot of things happens at once. So um, but we can call those creation events if we like. Hmm. Okay, we are coming to the bottom of the hour. Uh, yep. What do you want to tease for the next half hour? Isn't it? Say it's again. The dewy work. Let's you carry on. I'll look for something. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to be doing this for the next uh, hour and a half. So we're basically at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes. He is one of the pioneers in cycles research. He's discovered that I have that when you're trying to think outside the box you develop enemies. The question, of course, is are they enemies just because they're stuck in the mud or are they enemies because their job is to stamp out burning ducks and prevent human progress? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, December 10th, 2022. We're talking about cycles, and we're purposefully not getting into the area yet of theory, what's driving cycles. We're trying to stay kind of empirical. My guest is Ray Tomes, who is a board member and the science director of the Re 
constituted foundation for the study of cycles founded back in the 1940s by the chief economic analyst of the Department of Commerce at the behest of the President of the United States, Herbert Hoover. The thing, Ray, that keeps staggering me is how much time has elapsed and how many extraordinary people were involved in the beginning. And in terms of the mainstream, we kind of, as a culture, know less now about the existence of these background cycles than they did then, which indicates to me a coherent, careful, methodical program of suppression. Well, the other, there's other ways of looking at it. Who was it? Some famous person said, uh, never attribute to malice what can be attributed to, to ignorance. Um, and maybe we got distracted by electronics or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but when you see something that affects every known phenomenon on yeah. the planet and off the planet, and you've got a, you know, generations of brilliant people I mean, Shapley was involved, the head of the Princeton Institute, where Einstein spent his final years in the United States doing, you know, looking for the grand unified field theory. When you've got economists, when you've got business tycoons of the caliber of Forbes, the guy who founded the Bakelite, you know, corporation, when you have those level people and after generations, nothing has happened These were not dumb people. They started down the road of trying to figure it out. And somewhere along the line, something got suppressed. Yeah, well, well, somebody dropped the ball. Um, Nobody nobody took took on from uh, after um, Dewey, did they? Why didn't someone else not pick up and take over from him? Well, in every other avenue, look at nuclear theory, look at cosmology, look at space flight. You know, they went from guys, you know, sending up model rockets at JPL to landing men on the moon within a couple of decades, just right after Lindbergh in terms of, of you know, start. Years later, we're looking at it again. Yeah. Well, but why in this area, which encompasses everything and has so many answers, particularly since at an empirical level, and let's, let's talk about Wall Street now, because one of the things that intrigued me was how the research evolved over the, over the generations from trying to figure it out, meta theory, to putting it to use empirically, like if it works, don't ask too many deep questions, just use it to make a lot of money. Yeah. How did that happen? When did that happen? Under whose aegis? Well, did that happen? Well, I don't know. Well, the thing is, people followed on from Dewey, and they carried on going through the motions, but I don't think, you can't blame another person if they didn't have quite the, uh, as good a mind as Dewey and they took over. Um, if they did the best they could, uh, it carried on, you know, and that's what happened as far as I can see. Because I wasn't there at the time. He he died in 78 or something, and I didn't get there until 89, so... Uh, well, what kind of, uh, since we were talking about this reconstituted foundation, the one that Dewey formed, yeah. Yeah. what are they doing in the field of research to try to get to the bottom of how do all these disparate cycles synchronize 
and yeah. interfere with each other and harmonically relate to each other and coerce each other in areas so diverse they will, you know, never the twain shall meet. Yeah. Within the Cycles Foundation, there are a bunch of people that are working on um, stock market and market cycles of various sorts, commodities and so on, right? They are not... They will occasionally mention the odd cycle as harmonic of another one, but that's not their main research. Their main research is trying to forecast the markets. Um, as far as I know, I'm the only one working as a general cycles researcher trying to get the wider get the wider thing, and um, and I'm getting too old for it. Um, I can't do um, very deep research on any of those areas anymore. Uh, I do have a blog, you might might be interested in this, um, on, um, I'll put the link in, um, down on the bottom there. Uh, where is it? Okay, so far we've got your, your foundation, the Cycles Research Institute. We've got your yeah. personal website, ray.tomes.biz slash maths, with an end on the S, dot HTML. Yeah. Keith will, oh, put, yes, we do. We, Keith will put that up yeah, on, yeah. on next year bio. Okay, I've popped Mob Mobley Universe on YouTube um, there for Keith as well, um, and that's got that's got best part of a hundred. Wait a minute, I think we're All missing. Right. Go ahead. I've accidentally started the video running, which I didn't intend to do. Uh, <laughs> Pause. Turn okay. off the uh, bubble machine. That's the one. Um, okay, so this is so this is called Wobbly Universe, and it what relates about cycles and correlations and yes. oscillations. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so we'll add that as item number twenty-one to your list tonight. Yeah. yeah. Wobbly Universe. It sounds like it was uh, an Australian who who produced it. A New Zealander. Ah. Okay. <laughs> It's me. Oh, uh, oh, okay. So this has got um, an American friend uh, who wanted to help me with uh, all this stuff in Cycles Research Institute. He, um, I paid for him to come over to New Zealand and, and, and put him up for a couple of weeks um, because he could do video and um, sound and that sort of stuff. So um, he took about, um, oh, I'm not sure, about 100 short clips of me um, talking about different cycles related topics and we started um, we started editing and a lot of them have been put on here um, not all of them are there's still a whole lot more waiting to be done um, sometime I'll just buff them all somewhere so were these clips from your presentations at various conferences or was this done sitting in your yeah. office or in your behind your desk yeah. doing right to the yeah, camera yeah, both. Both. Uh, oh. they were, oh, no, sorry. These ones were done either um, in the office or sitting out on the deck or down in the bay looking at the tide coming in and out and all sorts of things. Um, there, are, there, there are, I have got a bunch of other ones relating to conferences. Um, they aren't released widely yet, but um, I've got about, I've talked at conferences on about, um, oh, I don't know, a dozen occasions around the world, a few in New Zealand, a few in America, one in Russia, one in, some in England, Canada, whatever. I didn't even go to Canada and St. Petersburg, but I've talked at those places through the, through the medium of uh, internet. Um, so there's a lot of stuff. Um, I'm trying to get it all organized to um, have the whole thing presented 
so that people can study it all if they want to. Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. This Wobbly Universe is a good place to start. It's got lots of stuff. Um, there's also, I'll, I'll give another one here, where are we? Um, um, the Cycles Research Institute blog. Um, hang on. How come we're on page two? Uh, let me just see what happens if I go back a page. Live radio, I'll put, folks. I'll put this on. I'll put this one um, as a link here as well. Excellent. Blog. Uh, so this one has got, um, the other one is videos. This one is um, um, words and graphs and the odd bit of video and stuff as well. Um, this, now, when, is, when, when did you create the Cycles Research Institute? I think it was 2001. 2001. And, yeah. of course, it's on the Internet, so people have been able yeah. to reach you <clears throat> from all around the world. Who has reached you? What have they said? And have they had any really extraordinary ideas because of the dialogue and the conversation? Yeah, well, it's funny you should say that because the very first thing on that Cycles Research Institute blog, he's actually a personal friend. Um, he, he's a concert pianist and composer. Oh. And he, he suggested on Facebook that there might be a 125-year cycle on the birth dates of composers. So, um, and... Um, there's a chart of all the composers, and if you go through and have a look for places where there's bursts of them and mark them all out, they happen at exactly 125-year intervals. Holy there's bursts cow. of composers. Yeah. Um, and there's um, – oh, now, this I mentioned to you Raymond Wheeler, and I didn't talk about him, but he's worth mentioning. Um, he produced a thing called The Big Book. Now, I've seen this big book, and I've opened it. Um, it's about more than a metre wide before you open it, right? Wow. Um, and less than a metre tall. And when you open it out, it's huge. And um, there's a lot of columns running down all across this very wide book. And time is running down the left-hand side all the way through. And he goes back, you know, a couple of thousand years, and he comes up to what was his present, which is sort of 1950s, I think. Um, and he has what was going on, and he's got every different area he's got out. So this was a contemporary of, of Dewey? That's correct, yeah, yeah. And uh, so he he was a professor of psychology, I think, in America. Um, but for somehow he managed to get large numbers of students doing analysis for him. I'm not sure how he did that, but they were doing it on all sorts. All it's and, called and graduate of... student slave labor, Ray. That's what you That's need. Right, you need yeah. your own little coterie of grad students yeah. doing slave labor to diversify yeah. what you're trying to do. Now, his stuff was not, um, it wasn't all published. Um, there's a book called The Roadmap of Time, uh, where another guy wrote up a lot of stuff about him. But his stuff, um, some of it's probably been lost. Uh, but it's well, it's well worth looking at. Um, yeah. So here's another one I'm seeing on here. Uh, when I went to Russia, I went to the, the um, um, their institute, um, I'm trying to get the name of it right. Um, he had all the um, physicists there. It was Biophysics Institute uh, in a place called Pushchino, which is a couple of hundred miles south of Moscow. Um, okay. And Simon Schnoll was the man that ran it. And they are the ones that discovered that um, plutonium doesn't be decay randomly. Um, and so before I went there, an American fellow by the name of Fred Thomas uh, I'd come across him on the in the days of um, 
uh, what was the thing before the World Wide Web? Uh, there was the ARPANET. The, um, uh, no, after that, it was the um, the uh, groups. The um, oh, you mean like 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 CompuServe and uh, the various uh, chat yeah, groups. There was, the different groups that you had, they had names or dots in between them, um, and you could get in discussion groups on physics or astronomy or music or whatever it was you're interested in. And um, I came across here, there in physics, and um, he was trying to tell people that um, um, that when he was at university, they told him that um, about um, voltages and that uh, voltages were only relative. And he said, that doesn't sound right. It must be an absolute value. You know, the other, you can have relative, but absolute must exist. And um, they all said no. So he set about and made a device that could measure absolute voltages. Um, and then um, because it was cheaper to get things produced in Russia, he had some Russians producing some of the equipment for him. And he found that the, the voltage at ground level um, over the space of a few weeks can vary by hundreds of thousands of volts. Uh, which, of course, is why we get bolts of lightning and stuff, right? Right. Uh, it makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about it. Anyway, uh, um, he, when I was chatting with him about about his work and that, what he was saying and other people were disagreeing with him, and he found me pleasant because I, I could understand what he was saying. I told him a bit of my stuff, and he said, oh, he says, the people I'm in touch with in Russia would be interested in this, uh, and he put me in touch with them uh, and the biophysics laboratory, and they were they were finding all of this stuff uh, all these fluctuations in uh, plutonium decay, and they found that um, that there are cycles of a year, a month, uh, and a day um, in plutonium decay. Now, in the West, they've caught up with the year one, um, but they don't acknowledge the rest. Um, the month is the lunar month, of course, the real month, and the day is both the sidereal and the synodic day. So 24 hours, uh, which is coming back to the sun, relative to the sun, but also 23 hours, 56 minutes, when you come back relative to the stars. Both of those show up in the data. So uh, I said to them, I said to them, can I have some of your um, data, please? Uh, and they said, yes, we'll send you some. And they, it was at that stage they were measuring it every minute, uh, and they had been for 18 years. And they sent me a, a couple of months of one-minute data. Before they sent it, I said to them, I, I predict that there'll be three and six-minute cycles in it. And they said, no, there's none of those. Um, they told me there's only the, the day, the month, and the year. And I said, oh, well, I'm going to do the analysis a different way to you, so I'll find them. Anyway, after I found them and I showed them what I'd found, when I arrived over there, this lady, uh, Natalia, uh, Udal Sova. She took the, um, she showed me, I've gone through all 18 years doing, uh, we have a method of analysis very similar to the one you described, and this, these two periods are present throughout the whole time of that, there, through there. So that's very important. So there are three and six minute cycles in the solar, in the inner solar system. These are the, if you take standing waves, um, that the Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars doesn't quite fit so well, uh, on the nodes of those waves, a three-minute wave will go through those ones, a uh, standing wave, um, and the six-minute waves. Now, the sun has some cycles in this three- No, wait, wait, wait back up, back up. What, what do you mean goes yeah, through yeah, them? Yeah. What, what do you mean goes through them? <clears throat> you, you're, you're measuring, first of all, what were they measuring on this 18-year uh, 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 period? Uh, not period, measuring, but, but, They were measuring, each one minute they measured how many, um, blips they got on the Geiger counter uh, of 
Okay, so this, was, so this was radioactive decay of what? Plutonium? Plutonium, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they're using plutonium decay as a clock. They've got yep. 18 years worth of data, the library, yep. and they found on their own a year, a month, and a day cycle in the decay yep. rate variance of plutonium. And you said right. there should also be two and three minute cycle That's variations. Three, three and six minutes. Three, three and six. six. Minutes. Yeah. And they said, yeah. well, we haven't seen that. And then you applied your analytical tools. You found it. Yeah. They then went back and looked at their 18 years and they found it separately from you. Yeah, yeah, that's right, through the whole thing. Okay, yeah. so what's the three and the six minute cycle correspond to that you know of? Okay, let me give you the alpha planets first, because that's it's easy to understand, uh, because they're more regular. Um, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Pluto was a planet when I started doing this. They are very near to 10, 20, 30, and 40 astronomical units from the sun. Okay. 10 astronomical units is just over 80 minutes. That means they are on the nodes uh, of, you have an, every 80 light minutes, you have the node of a 160 minute wave. So um, if you draw a standing wave centered on the sun, going out through the outer planets, um, you pick up um, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto. Jupiter is on a half of that, so it's on a, a 40 or an 80 minute wave. Now those waves, 80 and 160 minutes, have been found substantially by a lot of people. Uh, most notably one Russian named Kotov. Uh, he, um, the, I call it Kotov's method that I do the analysis. Um, he found 160 minutes existed in many things. He was aware of the spacing of the planets. Um, it also so happens if you look at the rotation periods of the planets, uh, Earth and Mars both rotate in about 24 hours. Uh, Saturn and Jupiter both rotate in about 10 hours. Um, that's, um, in one case, four times 160 minutes, in the other case, nine times 160 minutes. In other words, uh, the formula has an N squared in it, just like um, the formulas in the atomic uh, structure. Um, and the, the structures that we find at the um, planetary scale are quite similar to the ones in in the atomic scale. So let me so, let me see if I get this right. <clears throat> if we take the sun mm -hmm. as the center of the system, and we yeah. take the planets as roughly circular around it as radial rings getting bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger, yeah. these cycles correspond to, at the speed of light, electromagnetic yes. energy crossing the orbit of successive planets. Am I right? Yes. Wow. And yet, the, the phenomenon is not just electromagnetic. Um, I, well, it might not. It might be something else. Uh, at one stage, you say all gravitational, but I think it is, in fact, electromagnetic. Okay. Well, of some form of that, yeah. And the inner planets are the same, but with um, a six-minute wave, which has a node every three minutes, every three light minutes. Now, um, the sun happens to have a 160-minute um, um, periodicity in it, um, and there's been debates about this. This is called the helioseismological, very long word, measurement of sound waves ricocheting back in the sun. Yes. Like That's it, the three- and six-minute ones, yes. Like, yep. It, yep. Like, like it is quivering, like a bowl of Actually, jello. It, it's, it's like a whole, um, it's like a checkerboard, right, with alternate regions up and down, 
uh, and you can count different numbers around latitude, longitudinally and latitudinally. Uh, and all these different modes have slightly different periods, but they're concentrated. They, they used to be called the five-minute waves. Um, the, they range from about three to 11 minutes, and the most biggest concentration is just under six minutes. Wow. So, but but again, we're looking at the we're looking at the surficial evidence, but we're not looking at what's driving the fundamental physics underneath the waves. Yeah, well, it's it's considered to be sound waves bouncing around in the sun, but what keeps it going? Um, it should damp out like up. any sound uh, under ordinary circumstances. Yeah. If you if you ring a bell. Uh, except with the moon. Remember the moon rang like a bell for over an hour when they dropped the first limb on it? Okay, yeah. Way back in the 60s when there was Apollo yeah. 11 and 12, and they were measuring with seismometers. And instead yeah. of, you know, dissipating in a few minutes, like on Earth, it rang for over an hour like it was a bell, like energy yeah. was continually being amplified and pumped in from somewhere. Yeah. You're saying yeah, well, the same thing for the sun. Yes, but of course the sun's got all this huge outflow of energy, so it can very easily keep supporting things, can't it? Maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah. I can tell you some more funny things the sun does, because I told you I worked out that it was the tidal forces that, of the planets that affected it. There's actually been four different theories to explain um, uh, the, the sunspot fluctuations of the planets affecting the sun. Um, there's another one which which is based on the um, the motion of the sun about the center of mass of the solar system. Now, to my way of thinking, that's not a cause of anything. It's just well, it's you just ha you, ha you have to explain this because most people think you've got a star, the sun, and you got planets yeah. are going around it. But no, the sun is actually moving around a center that's off center yeah. from its physical center because the planets have mass and they're yeah. dragging on the sun gravitationally. So it yeah. moves in what's called a Barry center rotation. It's like exactly. the earth. It's like the earth and the moon. The moon does not go around the earth. The moon and the earth go around a common center, which because yeah. of the mass difference still is beneath the surface of the earth. But technically Please. the earth is moving in counterpoint to the motion of the Please. moon. Yeah. You've got it. And in the case of the four gas giants, they're the big planets um, with the big masses. Jupiter has the biggest effect, but the collect none of the, them on their own will put the center of mass outside the sun. But if they happen to be on the same side, then, then they will. So the sun has been swinging in a big circle bigger than itself, right? Right. Uh, or, so it's doing loops in space. And people have drawn pictures of how these go, and they, they can work all that out. That's not a problem. Um, but... Um, that, on its own, I don't believe that causes something to happen. Um, I'm in agreement. It doesn't. <clears throat> yeah. So, but, um, but there's another thing that happens. Um, first of all, I started trying to calculate um, the effect. Well, no, let's jump to the, to the answer. The, um, the, what's some... Remember that Einstein um, predicted the effect of the gravity on light as it went past in an eclipse, uh, that they could see starlight coming just past the surface of the sun. Yeah, the and gravitational field 
of the yeah. moon in this case, I'm sorry, of the sun during an eclipse yeah. is bending yeah. light, literally acting like a gravitational lens. Yeah, and it's and it bends twice as much as would be predicted under Newtonian gravity. Now people say Newtonian gravity didn't predict that, but it does, and Newton was aware of it himself. Um, and the the amount Einstein predicts is twice as much. Now, um, based on that, um, there's two formulas you need to use. One is that bending of light going past, and the other one is light falling or, or rising vertically relative to the sun. There's an effect of um, it, it doesn't affect the velocity because it's always going at sea, but it does affect um, the momentum per unit mass. Uh, so I had to invent a new term um, for for what happened there um, was using some differentials. And it turns out that the effect in the vertical direction is only half as much as the effect in the of the horizontal one, right? So wait, 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 are we talking the transverse wave itself of electromagnetic radiation? Yeah. The so uh well when you get a you get a, a red or a blue shift according to when you're climbing up or or down a gravity well, right? Right. So that's the thing I'm talking about. But I had to express it a different formula because um it's you can't it's not called acceleration. Uh, because acceleration is a change in velocity. But if we work out the momentum per unit mass, uh, that can vary. Okay. I find a new variable that I call pull, uh, which has the dimensions of acceleration. Um, and in the case of, of uh, the bending of light going past the sun, it is an acceleration, right? The, the vector changes. But in the case of the vertical, um, you can't call it acceleration, so I call it this other thing. Uh, and when you do that, if you now consider photons in the center of the sun, uh, what's going to happen to them? Well, we know that the sun's moving about by more than its own size, so if those things are pulled twice as much as ordinary matter, which is what actually happens, then it should, they should get, try to get move away from the center of the sun. Now, I once rang, there's a New Zealand guy who's famous in relativity because he worked out, um, what, what did he work out? He wrote, worked out something to do with rotating black holes. Uh, oh, Kerr? Kerr? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yo, so I, I think his I, name was I Robert Kerr, K-E-R-R. That's right. I phoned him up and I wanted to discuss this with him. And he said, don't be silly. The planets don't have any significant effect on photons inside the sun. I said, well, let's do the calculations. Uh, I meant to keep on the long phone long enough to say, how much does the, does the sun move about by, um, you know, relative to these big planets? And I got him to agree about that. And I said to him, well, the effect of the relativity is to move the, the photons about by more than that. Um, and he said, no, it's not. And I said, he, he said, it's far too small. I said, well, what's the formula? For the distance moved, it's s equals half a t squared. And I said the a is very small. We we're agreed. Jupiter is is a long way away, and its mass is far less, so the effect is incredibly tiny. But then we've got the t squared. The time that you had light whizzing past the sun was for a second or so. This is happening. Um, but the planets are above or below the plane of the sun's equator, 
for, for, for decades at a time. And when you square decades divided by seconds, you undo all that tininess and produce something quite significant. Okay, uh, hold it there. No, no, you can't do that, he said, and you wouldn't talk anymore. Oh, my. Hold it there. <laughs> we will yeah, pick yeah. up on that thought when we come back. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Ray Tomes, who is a uh, really interesting guy who started out in uh, math and physics and wound up making money. We're going to get into the money part in the next hour and figured out there were economic cycles, then figured out that, oh, there's lots of other cycles and they appear to be related to economic cycles. And we're going to talk about the cross between theory, research, and practicality, where all this knowledge can be used, if you get it and you got the right computer, to make you a tidy sum. Maybe. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. back to the other side of midnight for this now Saturday night, Sunday morning. If you want to join this uh, conversation, and I'm sure you will have some very interesting questions, um, let me give out the numbers, okay? Because this is where people can help because you can join the conversation and you might have something that I haven't thought of and uh, that's always more often the case than not. So if you want to call in 917 917- 889-8802-917-889-8802-917-889-8802. And we've got someone from New York City who I'm not, oh, 
whoops, they disappeared. They decided they did not want to ask the question or uh, they got cut off the internet or a sparrow landed on their landline or whatever. Anyway, uh, Ray, what I want to do is I want to turn back to the evolution of the foundation from a bunch of people very plugged in, you know, the, the creme de la creme de la creme from science to corporate literacy to money making to God knows what. And they all somehow got sidetracked into trying to figure out how this all worked, which would not only have revolutionized science, given that these cycles are prevalent in incredibly diverse fields, all occurring with peaks and valleys, you know, simultaneous across things from lynxes migrating to uh, the price of pig iron on the stock market in New York. They all got diverted and they just kind of went away. And now you're telling me that the foundation is basically occupied by a bunch of people who want to use these empirical data to make money, but they don't seem to be really very interested in how does it work. Uh, no, I would say they're very interested in how it works. Ah. Uh, but, but their background is the money-making side. Uh, so now I only just looked up your page that says how to make lots of money using hypernutrial physics, Ray Tomes. And I didn't realize, I thought we were talking about Edward Dewey and the Cycles Foundation. So when it comes to uh, how to make a lot of money, my advice is do go to cycles.org, which is the Cycles Foundation's website. Uh, and there's a lot of material there. Uh, uh, a moderate amount of it is available for free. And if you join, you can get more and more. And um, the best stuff, of course, costs more. Uh, but, but there's, an, uh, there's um, a number of guys there who all operate their own lists of people um, that they do investing for or give investment advice for. Um, and they're very experienced guys. And uh, they, bit, they know much more than me about how to predict the markets. Um, right, so, so that's the place to go if, you want to, if you're really interested in that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and um, well, uh, let me let me let me give you some context, and then we have some calls, so we'll go to the phones because I'm sure people have a very interesting question to ask you. But let me ask you this question: Given that people are very oriented to practicality, you know, results, 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 yeah, a lot of this sounds like theory, like arm waving, like you know, the usual uh, things that stop people from following curiosity. But the one thing that you cannot deny is if something works, even if you don't understand how it works, if it does work, then there's a lot of experience in human behavior where people put it to use, even if they don't have a, a working model behind it. You're telling me yeah. that the foundation has trying to figure out how this broad multidisciplinary cycles synchronization works but kind of in the interim, they put it to use in predicting market cycles, betting money at the right time, selling at the right time, that kind of thing, so that there's a practical benefit. Am I, am I correct? Yeah, I think so. When you were working with the market and working yeah. with cycles, you found out independently that there are empirical cycles that you can bet on that actually, more often than not, work, right? 
That's right. So that led you into the larger field of psychoscience, the underlying physics framework for how does this work, right? Yeah. So if, if people are invited in the front door because they might have a little spare cash and they want to invest it, what would be your advice to those people? Uh, go to cycles.org, watch a lot of the videos. Now, there's a new set coming up. Um, every six months, they do um, a, a bunch of market forecasts, and I think it's happening in January sometimes, so it's not too far away. Um, you can look at the older ones, but they will have been running their course by now. Um, you can check out and see if they were, were right or not. Uh, and um, they, they have do different things. They'll do some commodities. They'll do the stock market and maybe some other things. Uh, so uh, um, they even do some of the um, Bitcoin stuff. Personally, uh, oh, I don't want to do those things here. Um, okay. Well, the obvious you know, question is they wouldn't be doing this unless it worked, right? Well, that's what you'd think, isn't it? So then the question is, how often does it work? Does it work above chance? Does it work above other experts who use under indi other indicators? In other words, if you actually become a student of cycles as a broad field of endeavor, can you use it to actually augment your income? Yes. Well, uh I retired when I was 42. Um, in part, that was based on uh, doing investments. In part, it was based on being good at computer stuff. Uh, but I used to do investments at that work for a long time. But it's getting harder, I think, on the investments because there's so many clever people and so many fast computers and so many things like that um, that it's not easy to outperform the others. You don't necessarily have to, of course, um, but you can do very – they're very, very fast cycles. Like um, we used to look at the cycles that were measured in years and months and days, um, but now they do ones in hours and minutes and seconds. Um, I told one of the guys that's written one very good program. He's not a member of the foundation, but he does stuff based on um, one historical figure. Uh, and I told him there will be these cycles of these periods when you get down to them, you know. Um, I mentioned the same ones that we found in the plutonium decay. And um, when he got there and he found that, yes, that, that seemed to work, he, he decided that he needed to talk to me more. But mm. I don't try to make money out of those. I just, um, I've got enough money um, to, um, for my meager tastes. My interest now is in uh, taking the riddle, solving the riddle a bit more. Hmm. Okay. Uh, we got some questioners or callers or people who may have yep. some ideas. Uh, let me give out the numbers again if you want to talk to Ray and ask him obviously anything from how he got into this to how he uh, understood cycles well enough to be able to retire at 42, which is not a mean feat, to the fundamental theories of how does this work, call 917-889-8802, 917-889-8802. And we've got someone calling from area code 508, who has, I believe, a question, you're on the air. Can we have yes, your... Hi, Ray. I have three quick questions for you. Can, um, can we have your first name? Let's just... Uh, it's Jonathan. Hi, John. Hi, Richard. Hi. <laughs> Hi, John. Um, first question. If 
let's just say there was a civilization on Mars long ago, would they have the same cycles, life cycles and such that we do? And question two, no solar system is alike. So would another solar system with you know eight rock planets and 12 gas giants, would that have different cycles? And number three question is, I was having a lengthy conversation with Russell Targ before the show, and we were discussing Richard's research on the moon uh, for tomorrow night's show. And, you know, Russell worked with Ingo Swan, who remote viewed them and wrote a book called Penetration about it. Um, and he remote viewed Jupiter as well. Uh, I can talk about that on tomorrow night's show, but um, they also did this experiment on the stock market where they remote viewed the future, basically, or, and they did very well at that. So what do you think psychics, are they tapping into these cycles? Is that what they're doing? Or do you have any, any opinion on either of any of these questions? Hey, let's start with the first one. Yes, on Mars, I believe that the cycles would have been pretty much the same as what we have here. There'd be some differences. For example, on the Earth, one of the important cycles is the human resonance, the cycle of the electromagnetic standing wave around the Earth, which goes around about seven and a half times per second. Uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that that's in the middle of our brainwave frequency. So uh, there's a tie up there with light here. Uh, but the other cycles that we've talked about, the ones in multiple years and so on, they would be pretty much the same. In fact, if I take the periods of um, the different planets or of the different moons and I put them through this analysis method that I call Kotal's method, it comes out with a bunch of cycle periods which match very well to the cycles observed in nature. So, um, so that's, um, they, that shows they are intimately connected to the whole solar system. If we go to other uh, solar systems, other stars, it's worth mentioning that um, if we look at the nearby stars, uh, the, um, they tend to, there's certain distances that tend to exist between stars. Excuse me a moment. A lot of the stars tend to be, Dewey's number 4.44 years, a lot of the stars uh, tend to be on a wave of 4.44 uh, light years. Um, so the nearest star to us, Alpha Centauri, is 4.3 something. It's quite close to that. Um, Sirius is 8.6 something, near, near double that. And so these are on waves. Um, bigger stars will be on the bigger waves, the 8.8, and uh, the smaller ones on the on the smaller one. And there's other ones as well. They they intricately interlock. Uh, so some stars with mass very similar to the sun, to the sun. Uh, are more likely to have solar systems similar to ours. But we know that a lot of these other ones are very different solar systems. Uh, however, the first um, body that was found that had multiple uh, planets of known distances, it was a uh, pulsar, and the distances of the planets in that, um, the first four were almost exactly half of uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars distances from from the from its body. Now that's because they had a bigger mass, so you would expect to get the smaller values, but they were in proportion. So the harmonically relationships that we're finding will still exist, but there may be a bias or a tendency. Again, if we look at all the black holes that have been observed and known in many galaxies nearby and take the masses that they're known to have, and if you calculate their radius from their uh, from those masses, 
They also like to show um, multiple fractions of 160 minutes, which is exactly what we found in our, in our solar system. So that those waves are penetrating the entire um, the entire observable universe, uh, but there will be places where some waves are stronger and some are weaker. Uh, where there's a lot of lot of matter, um, then you expect to get the higher frequency waves. Where there's a lot less, you get the lower frequency ones. Here, here's the thing related to that, which is quite uh, amusing. The um, I mentioned that the outer planets had these waves, 160 light minutes, and the inner ones about six. The outer planets are composed of hydrogen, deuterium, mass 2, helium, mass 4, and so is the sun. So the masses go 1, 2, 4. If the sun goes further on, it will then produce 12 carbon. If we look at the uh, Earth, starting from its outer layers, the, we have nitrogen 14, uh, and the crust is oxygen and silicon, which is 28, and the core is iron, which is 56, so we're seeing 14, 28, 56 going in. That applies to masses, and mass and frequency are the same thing. Um, and so um, it doesn't apply to atomic numbers, only to atomic masses. So uh, according to um, physicists I tell this to, this is a coincidence. But isn't it a funny coincidence that the orbits of the inner planets just happen to be 14 times smaller than the orbits of the outer planets, and um, the, which means that the um, wavelength is 14 times smaller and that the things they're made of are in that same proportion. Hmm. I want to go back to John. Well, if you were an engine, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Go ahead. So, if you were going to engineer a solar system, <laughs> this we talk about that a lot over here, Ray. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. I've I've written some stuff well, yeah, on how, how, how to make to a universe. John. Go ahead, John. I, they're using the planets to program these cycles. Does that sound right? The planets are forming. The 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 waves are there first. The planets form uh, on the nodes of those well, waves. Wait, 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 wait. What, what John is suggesting, and I've suggested it from my own research, we may live right in a designer solar system. Yeah. Someone may have created. There's really amazing evidence that the ancient primordial system did not look like the one we currently inhabit. And then, of course, yeah. you have to ask the question back to Arthur C. Clarke, my dear friend, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable yep. from magic. From magic. If yep. someone left us in a nursery, in a kindergarten, so we learn how the universe works, they might have designed a system so no matter where we look, if we're smart enough and bright enough, they've given us huge clues to the underlying yeah. cycles that determine our very existence and our lives because this was a school. Yeah. Well, in that case, it's a big, big, big school because I think it's the whole universe. <laughs> well, but if you, if, if you have a whole bunch of big stuff going on, but you've got a local example where things are kind of amplified so the students don't miss it. In other words, two ideas can be true at the same time. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's often the case, I think. I think that's the, okay, I John, think that's John, uh, John, stay there because we got another call from Harry. I, I didn't answer John's third question. Oh, okay, go, go ahead, please. Uh, I'm not sure how to answer that. Um, um, can people um, do remote viewing? 
Um, I, I've seen a lot of talk about that. I'm not, a, I'm not convinced about it myself, but I believe that there are people do, there are capabilities that people have that are beyond what people generally recognize. Let me just say that much only. Okay, Russell Targ is a well-known international physicist. He's going to come on the show, John, after the show. You and I will talk about when. I would recommend, Ray, I'll give you a heads up, that you listen to an eminent scientist from SRI discussing empirical data that remote viewing not only is real, but it mm-hmm. might be related to these same cycles if we lift our vision from 3D into a yeah. higher set of dimensions. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure my mind can do more, but maybe it can try for. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me let me pop a question in here. Um, on 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 John's first question, would would the cycles on Mars be kind of similar to Earth? And my bet is absolutely not. And remember, science okay. science is nothing if it's not prediction. Now, how do you differentiate between a theory and actual fact? You do measurements. You carry mm-hmm. out research. You do experiments. So if the, if the Russians have got 18 years worth of changing periodic plutonium decay rate data, I would imagine this does not just apply to plutonium. It applies to any radioactive element. So we could conceive of a really small, cheap experiment that could be put in a CubeSat by a group of amateurs funded through some kind of public research funding, yeah. like uh, you know, GoFundMe, and we cool. basically put a CubeSat in orbit around Mars, and we yeah. measure the decay rate of some readily available isotope, and I'm betting dollars to Navy Beans that the Martian environment will give us a totally different decay periodicity from that which the Russians have measured on Earth. Yeah. Well, I'd agree with that because we've got the uh, the Earth uh, the Earth day and the Earth, the lunar month and the um, Earth year um, being detected. So we would expect those to be different on Mars, wouldn't we? But wouldn't we see the same periodicity at the six and what is it nine minute mark? Um, yeah. Uh, well, um, Mars is a funny one because when we look at the planetary orbits, um, the outer planets are very regular spacings. The inner planets are a bit rough, and Mars is way off. Um, so, um, well, our friend Tom uh, Van Flandern had a, had a reason for that, which we'll yeah. talk about on the next show where we're going to do physics theories to explain cycles. That's going to yeah. be fun. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Our- uh, Rich. Yes, Keith. Uh, did anybody take into account the cycles that uh, – uh, actually, it was Inky told us about the cycles when their planet comes back every 3,600 Oh, the 3,600-year cycle. Yeah, and every time it comes back, we get droughts, we get climate change. And right now, the volcano went off on Mars, and they kept saying, that's just all condensation, condensation – because Mars doesn't have an active core, which it does. And then <clears throat> shortly thereafter, we got hit with volcanoes going off all over the place here on this planet. Is that a clue that this cycle is real? 
this planet comes back every 3,600 years. Ray, I think he's talking about the 3,600-year cycle in Sitchin's yeah. work, which was based on Sumerian tablets. Yeah, I have heard of it, yeah. Yeah, I was looking at all the clues, the stuff that was going on, because I think he kind of gave us a heads up of what happens when this planet comes back. It's supposed to be a big red ring planet, and it just has a weird orbit that takes 3,600 Earth years before it makes one complete orbit around our, our sun. Yeah. And we, are, I saw the volcano go off on Mars, and then shortly thereafter, all of a sudden, the Earth started having volcanoes. Tonga, La Palma, yeah. all, and Hawaiian volcanoes. All these volcanoes that have been quiet for like 800 and some years, they started popping up all over the place. Yeah. And I think that first volcano going off on Mars was our key that something is going Arcea on. Arcea Mons is the name of the volcano, Ray. It's, yeah. it's, it's the bottom one of the three that are lined up on the Tharsis Bulge with Olympus Mons off to the left. Sure. Yeah. I'll mention a couple of other cycles that are uh, um, of a similar nature to what you're talking about. Um, uh, uh, some papers were published saying that they'd found uh, they, the carbon-14 is used, um, as you know, for dating things going way back. But C-14 also tells us the fluctuations in the C-14 level in the atmosphere tells us um, about uh, solar Variation. So, for example, there's a couple of longer cycles of 207 years and 355 years, and there's longer ones than that um, out of the range you're talking about um, that, that are all interesting ones. Now, the interesting thing is that these guys that were measuring these, originally they only had every data every five years for the carbon-14. When they went to one yearly data, they discovered that there were certain times uh, when there were sudden discontinuities uh, in it, the, the carbon-14 did something very spectacular in one year. And they found three instances of this. And I thought, okay, I'm looking at these. What's the, just, what's the time interval between those? And each of them was the multiple of the 207 years. So I decided that this was the 207-year cycle. Now, the 207-year cycle in the sun is important because uh, in more or less alternate centuries recently, uh, in the 1800s, um, the sun was cooling. In the 1900s, it was warming. If we go back in, in alternate centuries, it was warmer and cooler. Um, but the current peak, um, well, the, the date of these things, if we run them forwards, um, predicts the next one of these uh, event does not happen every 207 years, right? Only some. And my explanation for that is that the sun's actually doing a blowout at some stage. Um, and if we happen to be in the way of it, we get hit. Uh, if we don't happen to be in the way of it, it misses us, then nothing major happens on Earth. Uh, so uh, that, that's an important one because the next one is due about 2025, not very far away. Mm. And um, if that happens, it would um, have major disruption to all the communication systems and the power grids and so on. Now, the last time anything major like that happened was in 1859. Um, it's called the... Uh, who was the physicist who observed it? Cavendish, uh, I think. Cavendish, Cavendish, that's right. Cavendish, uh, uh, one of those fellows observed it. Now, that's not the 207-year cycle, but it is the 355-year. Um, and there's two other such events that can be traced back on that one as well. So we've got these different cycles that come around. Um, and it's generally agreed that if one of those things should happen now, 
uh, it would cause a major disruption to Earth. And I reckon there's a 25% chance of it happening in the next 10 years. Fascinating. Yeah, but it may well not. Let's hope we're lucky. But I have noticed that in those times since I said that, there have been vast numbers of these um, solar mass ejections and things happening, and they keep saying, oh, this one, no, it's going to miss you, and things like that, you know. So it's, it's, it's a thing to keep an eye on. Do you know, and we've only got a couple of minutes till the bottom of the hour, and we've got some more people waiting on the line. You're very popular tonight, Ray. Um, oh, that's good. Um, what we need is a cheap, easy way of measuring cycles. I've developed yeah. my own technology, which we'll talk about in the next show, but it's radically different than the Russians measuring plutonium uh, changing decay rates. Has yeah. Have anybody, any other groups, physicists, institutes, the Foundation for the Study of Cycles, are they funding any work on measuring cycles, looking at physical changes in instrumentality? Um, not that I know of, not at the moment. Um, but going back a bit, there was a fellow, uh, an Italian called Picardi, um, and um, anyone who does chemistry at university discovers things aren't quite as regular as they are in physics. Mm. Uh, and so they... So um, he started looking at some of these chemical experiments and he found, sure enough, these are experiments which um, they don't always get the same answer. And you can do them, um, you know, as you, as you go day by day, the, the results vary all over the place. And he started doing them below ground, you know, several floors below ground level and found that changed things. Uh, so that's, it's a whole interesting area that needs to be studied more. Um, it's quite clear that there's a cosmic influence. Uh, there's another one like that. It's funny. No one studied this. Human blood around the world every day, tens of thousands of samples of human blood are spun in centrifuges um, to separate out the components. Uh, that that happens um, at an, a different rate depending on the day. And oh, if you, plot my. The, if you plot the rate at which that, uh, that they separate out. Okay, hang on, hang uh, on. We're, we're, we're at the bottom of the hour. I don't want to truncate this at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I have a cycle that I found. Other people have found it separately, but it's stunning because it's also biological. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagman. We've got Ray Tomes with us tonight, board member and science director of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. And wait till you see where we're going next. We shall return. Time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. 
eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We're delving into cycles, and we're doing it deliberately at the empirical, what-do-we-observe level. And when we do part two, and there may be a part three and a four, and you know, we'll get into the theory, and there are two theories at least I'm aware of, two theories on the table. One is Ray's, the harmonic theory, and then there's mine, the hyperdimensional torsion field physics theory. And it will be fascinating, I mean really fascinating, to compare notes. Because again, science is nothing if it's not prediction. Can we, each separate theory, separately predict a phenomenology, a periodicity, an underlying control mechanism for something now that appears to synchronize multiple three-dimensional phenomenon across a huge swath of disciplines and occurrences and phenomenologies, and yet there doesn't appear to be one common driver, at least not to current science. Okay, we've got some other um, uh, callers here. Let me get rid of this, which means I have to move that out of the way. Area code 727, stay where you are, John. 727, you are on the air. Yes, I was wondering, would all Sign in, please. With, uh, hang on, hang on. Sign in with your name. What's your first name? Oh, my name is Steve. My Steven. name is Steven. Sorry about that. Steven, welcome. Would all the different isotopes of different elements that are radioactive, would they all have different cycles in terms of radioactive decay? In other words, does uranium follow plutonium? Does plutonium follow neptunium? Or do they have separate cycles? And the, the reason I'm saying that is because the neutrons and protons at the center of where that reactivity occurs would have different hyperdimensional – they'd all be related to each other differently in a different configuration. Oh, what an amazingly cool question. Ray? Did we lose Ray? On mute. Don't tell me we lost Ray. Hmm. Oh, boy. <laughs> no, he's still there. Ray? Unmute. Hit your unmute button. Oh, see, we don't hear. Okay, hang on a second. It may be. Oh, my, my bad. My bad. Sorry, guys. Muted me. There you are. You, you, you muted me, didn't you? I muted I, you. Yeah. Well, I have to do in that. Case I coughed during the um, alphabet. See, that's yeah, why the Skype window is so important. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the, the Russians found that um, uh, the radioactive decay. The fluctuations they got in that, and they made these histograms of, the, of what happens over a period of time. Did they share they these all with you, and can you share them with us? 
I can, yeah, sure. Uh, oh, there's some paper. If you look at um, uh, Cycles Research uh, Institute, the blog, Cycles Research Institute blog, um, it's, um, it's, it's called cyclesresearchinstitute.wordpress.com. You will find on there, um, look for Simon Schnoll, S-H-N-O-L-L. You'll find a number of uh, things to do with him there, um, and these are all connected with that. Um, so he's, so they, they found that both the plutonium decay, also the chemical experiments that they had and other ones, all showed the same pattern. Um, so there, there's one thing causing it all. Um, that's not to say there may not be some possible variations. I suspect there would be, but um, there's definitely a, a one major thing going on there. So that's uh, yeah, that's a good place to start. Uh, what's, this, what's the second part of that question? No. Steve? Yeah, what I was asking was, would the different would be the different would different elements have a different rate yeah. of change in radioactive decay? Because yeah. the different well, well, of course, their decays they they um, they do have different rate of change and all of that, but the fluctuations in it uh, due to this to a cosmic influence, uh, which is I think the same probably for all of them, or at least very similar. Well, then the question becomes: Are the decay rates themselves part of a cycle? Yeah, and that gets oh, into the are. physics of atomic nuclei, yeah. you know, protons, neutrons, electrons, all the bizarre menagerie and zoo of infinite numbers of particles they quote found over recent years. Which I really wonder if they're really particles or they're more like oh, energy states. Yeah, yeah. So why, in other words, if you can, if you can take a, uh, a an element like tritium, which has a half life of something like uh, thirteen years, I think, and mm -hmm. And you find that it varies, but on a six-minute cycle, that's telling you something profound about what's really causing decay of radioactive yeah. materials in the first place, I would think. Because my, my, my opinion is that when I found that there are these three- and six-minute cycles in plutonium decay, that's just two cycles. There's many, 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 many others of different periods. And if that means if you put the whole lot together, it's not random at all. It's a fluctuation. It's all of those fluctuations coming together in some complicated uh, manner causes the decays. So I don't believe there's anything random in this universe. Well, before we had computers, figuring this out would have been almost impossible. But yeah. now that we've got computers, and that's your background, is computer modeling and theory and cyclic predictions, is there a way to write a program that can catch various cycles and see when the they all kind of cross and peak and that's when something really cool should happen yeah really the um uh that's that was one of my uh big projects is you, you when you look at the different cycles like say the 17.75 year one the 8.88 year and the 4.44 what you find is that um well if you go into the stock market say or commodity prices uh in stocks um when you have a cycle that's half as long as another one, it will have a trough at the same place as the other one, and it'll have another trough halfway in between when the other one's having its peak. Then it'll come back to the trough together. So, you know, and you get a whole cascade of effects like that. It's a bit like how you Americans have on your rulers an inch, then a half inch, quarter inch, eighth inch. Each of those is a little bit smaller, right? Right. Uh, in terms of the markings. So you've got those. So you've got a little sort of pattern going. Tickety, 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 boom, tickety, boom, tickety, boom. And that's all going on. So that sort of thing's happening. Um, in the 
commodities, it's the other way around. It's the peaks that get coordinated. Uh, and so you get, um, uh, they come together, you get an extra big peak when several of them come together. Um, I've got one graph which we can do next time, which is uh, showing copper prices for a couple of hundred years. And it's showing um, about a bunch of about eight or so of the uh, major cycles that are present in it that are harmonically related. And you can see how it's producing those different peaks. I've covered them with little colored dots to show the different ones happening. So yes, absolutely, that sort of stuff goes on. Hmm. Okay, I want to do two things. I want to talk about the bizarre cycle that I found, which I think is might be called the ultimate cycle. And then I want to grade back to the stock market because I've got an idea. Let's talk about COVID-19. For the first time during COVID-19, we had world health organizations all over the planet, different cultures, different political systems, different backgrounds, different people, different institutions, uh, different everything. And they pooled their data. And I chose as the database, the European CDC, uh, as opposed to the American CDC, because Trump had such terrible negative influence on our own CDC that you really couldn't trust what was coming out of them. But using the European model and the European data reporting, if you look at my graph six and seven and eight and nine, um, there was something stunning that came about, starting with number six. All over the world, all these diverse countries and political systems and medical establishments reporting to a common database discovered and published for years, for a couple of years until they suddenly stopped publishing, the fact that deaths were rising and falling on a seven-day cycle that was not connected all over the world to seven days of the week. And okay. this, this persisted for... 24 plus months until they cut off the data because somebody figured out that there was something going on here they did not want the world to know. Now, I kind of generalized from this that if you could understand that a patient in a, in a hospital ward was subject to this mysterious background cycle, depending upon the therapeutics you were applying, if you did it at a certain time, it would be more efficacious yeah, than if you sure. did it at some other time. So this was a real practical use for this data. But the more I looked at it, and as you can see, I've, I've organized some of these graphs. The first one is worldwide up until September 12th of 2.20. Then the next one shows two different hemispheres, north and south. It's got Europe, it's got the world, it's got North America, it's got Brazil, and you can see that the cycles all correspond. Irrelevant of the amplitude, in other words, the number of people dying was irrelevant. The number of yeah. cases being reported was irrelevant. It was merely to note accurately the time. And yeah. when they did that, and computers are very good at doing that, all over the world we have this stunning seven-day cycle. Number eight is my demonstration of how they're incredibly correlated between the hemispheres and the ninth graph simply shows that this goes on and on and on and the last measurement on that graph was June of 2021. <clears throat> Here's my point. 
given that we only had the political will to measure these deaths because of a global pandemic and apply resources worldwide, is it not possible, Ray, that we're simply looking at the human component of deaths of all forms of life, Earth, on the same seven-day cycle and if it's not connected to the calendar, to the week, then what could be causing it, and how does it apparently determine life and death on Earth? Yeah, when I do analysis of all the moons in the solar system and the planets, uh, it does show up 7, 14, 28 days, 84 days, and some other cycles, right? Right. Uh, the, the Russians frequently uh, report um, oscillations in various electromagnetic phenomena around the Earth of three and a half, seven, 14, 28 days. So those cycles um, do exist. Um, of course, from the point of view of the sun, it rotates in 26 days, but 28 days is seen by from the Earth. And because of the um, neutral sheet crossings, there's usually four of them, that means you do get a seven-day uh, cycle in um, uh, particles hitting the Earth, um, which is also explains why people have noticed that quite often, um, if it rains on one weekend, it'll do it for a number of weeks in a row. Uh, so those things are all connected. Um, yeah, so um, I think you found that. Now, how do I find this graph of yours? I haven't got to the right place yet. You just click on my name under the banner at the top of the guest page, and that okay. will take you to, and then it has you next to me, fast links to items, click on my name and the, or your name, and it takes you to both sets of graphs on the guest page, which is a click from the main page on, on okay, the banner. I'm on the other side of midnight, I'm seeing tonight's live show. Click on that banner for tonight's show, the banner. The other side of midnight, click on that. No, banner. no, 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 click on your, on your, on your name on the banner. How to make a lot of money yeah. out using hyperdimensional physics. Oh, well, on that banner, right. Click okay, on the banner. Yeah. That takes you to the guest page. Right under there, it says fast links to items with your name and my name. Fast links to items. Click on my name. Click on your name. Here we go. And go down to six, seven, eight, and nine. Rightio, I think I'm in the right place. Yeah, okay, right. Yes, I saw those earlier, but I've lost track of them. Okay, six, seven, eight, and nine. Now, there's, there's, good, there's yeah. a couple of virologists in, in Illinois, I think, who also yeah. tripped over this, and they published a paper, and then it disappeared. And I'm yeah. trying to get back to them because I want to get them on the show because they separately came to the same idea. This is not connected with the weak because we're looking at uh, Muslim countries. Yeah. We're looking at Jewish countries. We're looking at completely different calendrical systems. This is a an astronomical pacing yeah. seven-day yeah. deaths, and there's dramatic changes, dramatic, yes. and they're worldwide, and they're simultaneous, and that is telling us something amazing if we can figure – it's the most positive thing to come out of something horrible that I can imagine. Yeah, um, I think um, – and, and mentioning that a web page disappears, uh, I think there's a case for having a web – a web page, hopefully that won't disappear, where you can report web pages that were there and have now disappeared because I experience this thing from time to time also. Well, I'm going to keep trying to get hold of those virologists because they actually had uh, 
access to the source data and they were able to get a peer-reviewed paper published and then it all went away. So let me go to my second topic. I you would do like... About, go ahead. You know about the Wayback Machine, do you? Yes, of course. Okay, that's all right. Yep. But I've got someone I think can bird dog them and they're very good yeah. at finding people. So now that yeah, you've been good. on, yeah, yeah. Um, we're, I'm going to re- immediately make another effort uh, now that we're kind of in this post-COVID hysteria that we were in where you know you can yeah. actually talk about real science and people might listen okay let me go to my second idea yeah what if the other side of midnight were to give you a chunk of change and we'll decide on how big it has to be and using your best cycles research you were to basically play the market and demonstrate to people that these cycles do work in anticipation of coming back where we talk about the theory of how all this might actually function. Yeah. Um, I will talk to, um, I wouldn't do that, but the other guys in the foundation, uh, I can certainly talk to them about doing that if you wanted to do that. I would love exercise. to do a test because remember, nothing makes yeah. people pay attention than money. Yeah, sure. Unfortunately, yeah. we live in a world where unless there's something in it for somebody, they don't really yeah. give a damn. In, yeah. in, in this case, if we can demonstrate empirically over X number of weeks, we did this, this, and this, and this is how much we made starting at the starting point, yeah. I think that would be incredibly convincing because what we need are scientists involved yeah. in the theory and in the experimentation. For instance, I'll give you one major clue. The Russians are using radioactive decay. I was using changes of inertia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did see something about that. Yeah. Um, it's worth it's it's worth mentioning a fellow called Gan. I think he was in the 1930s. He used to trade markets, and on one occasion, and uh, he had claimed to make fantastic returns. And on one occasion, um, he allowed them to observe everything he did for a month, and he did some quite large number of trades. Well, not a hell of a large number, but a decent large number, and 90 something percent of them were profitable. Um, and he showed how much he could make in a month, and it's a lot. Oh, wait a yeah. And this was in the 1930s? I think about the 1930s, yeah. This Look is pre, 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 no computers. It was, you know, pencil, yeah. paper. Yeah. yeah, he did. And he he called it a tunnel in the air. He had all these, he had all these um, cycles running in his mind in the air, you know. Um, there's been a couple of people like him. He was probably the most famous one. My, my. And he was using harmonically related cycles as well. Okay. So is this related to the, like in Stonehenge, Maria Wheatley discovered that as you walk back in the, back in the day when Stonehenge was <clears throat> new and all the stones were up, and you had these circles within circles, you would go in there and you'd walk around the outer circle. And as you walk you are interacting with these vibrations that are caused by the placement of these circles within each other, and they're, they're vibrating in different frequencies. And so you become, uh, she calls it a, a perfect fourth or a perfect fifth, and a yep. perfect fifth is just a range of uh, like six notes, you know, one, two, do, re, mi, fo, so, la, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And so that... There's this music going on. She says it relates to Kepler's theories. 
there. The, um, they wouldn't let me walk around at Stonehenge when I went there. It was all closed. But uh, I have walked in some uh, Buddhist um, meditation places in India uh, that... Um, uh, and I can tell from the dimensions of the things, you know, that they had these proportions and that, that for the sound waves. Um, and you can certainly, uh, if you give a tap on one of the pillars, it hums, you know, yeah, that stuff goes on. We've lost that modern times. Um, people don't know how to build a cathedral that has all the correct um, relationships in it anymore. Hmm. Or, or it's been very quietly suppressed. Yes. Remember, this is yeah. the, if we figure this out, this is the keys to the kingdom. If you can relate something as diverse as links is migrating and the radioactive decay of, of plutonium to some mm -hmm. underlying physics, in other words, an energy mechanism. You talked about the synchronization of tides. Frankly, Ray, I don't think tides have a damn bit to do with this. I think it's at such a higher or deeper level, depending upon which sign you want, that we don't mm -hmm. even have the science yet. Maybe the ancient guys did, and we forgot. And what we see are these markers, these ceremonial sites like Stonehenge, which memorialize the physics of which we have no idea. Maybe well, um, you understand um, what uh, Stonehenge was for. Well, we have one model, which is the astronomical solar observatory idea or something to track the moon or, or both. But again, yeah. my work says it's much, much deeper, far well, more maybe more. healing temple. Maybe more, yeah. yeah. Well, that gets us in the realm of unseen energies. Now, it turns out sure. that current physics is looking at particles. No one is thinking since the birth of radionics of unseen energies mm -hmm. or multidimensional energies, which impinge on our reality because we're a subset of a higher dimensional fractal uh, set of realities, set of state spaces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If that's what we're dealing with, then you have to look to your the, the question of what is it that modulates these energies? And that's where we get back to such fundamentals as mass, momentum, inertia, gravity. See? Mm -hmm. I was thinking thought and willpower. <laughs> Well, that gets into a whole other area. When you say that this psychologist, uh, what was his name, Robert Wheeler or William Wheeler? Yeah, 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 um, Raymond Wheeler. Raymond Wheeler, that he was yeah. a psychologist, that means he must have been interested in consciousness. And, of course, it's consciousness that starts and stops wars. So mm -hmm. was he looking at the psychological, cyclic foundations of human behavior for thousands of years all over the planet? Yeah, sure, yeah. Well, he he recorded every as he recorded wars. He recorded every aspect. He included technology, literature, art, um, you name it. He, he, everything that humans were doing, he recorded a column about that and what was happening year by year um, as he went through all of that. And and weather, of course, uh, he had little he had graphs showing the different weather patterns that tended to occur. Hmm. Okay, uh, Keith has been able to put up next to your next to your picture in your bio, your website yeah. https colon forward slash forward slash cyclesresearchinstitute dot org, then yeah. the cyclesresearchinstitute wordpress dot com, then yeah. the the YouTube video 
uh, wobbly wobbly universe. Yeah. Um, and and I'll have to go check your uh, your items to see if there's anything there. Um, yeah. Looking to see if he put up twenty and twenty one and twenty. See why you call it radio with pictures now? You got lots of pictures. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's one of the things we've invented. Can radio. I throw out a quick question? Yeah, sure, sure. Sure. Go ahead. Ray, what does this say about radiocarbon dating? Can we trust the dates that are given to us by scientists when they use this method to... Cool question. You know, yeah, yes, yes, we can because um, the um, uh, by counting tree rings back on, on, a, on a tree that's just been cut down now, we can count the tree rings back and we can take samples from each year and we can calibrate it, right? And there are slight wanderings around due to the amount of carbon-14 in the atmosphere fluctuating a little bit, which is due to um, the interaction of the, uh, the sun and the um, uh, cosmic rays, uh, causing fluctuations in the amount of carbon-14 produced in the atmosphere. And then by finding another tree that overlapped this one in age, they've gone back, um, well, at uh, one stage it was 15,000 years. I think it's about 50,000 years now. Um, so so um, anything that's been found that's got wood or something similar, in it um, that's um, in that period of time can be carbon dated quite accurately. Occasionally there'll be um, two or three values that will fit and they can't say for certain which one it is. And now do you think that there's a theory that there was a civilization 200,000 years ago and about 400, 450,000 years ago and I'm just wondering if there are cycles to civilizations where they, they you know, every 250,000 years a new one comes along, the old one's long dead and, and something new comes yeah. along. Well, we can't do that with carbon-14. It won't go anywhere there that far. Um, the ice ages come in cycles. There's, there's a 100,000-year cycle. There's a 400,000-year cycle. Um, and so those ones can be looked at um, going back further. Um, but I don't know what evidence there is for civilizations. Um, I haven't seen anyone that's put together something that's civilizations over those that sort of time periods. Do you think there were civilizations before us? Um, I, I, everything I see says that uh, people were in the Americas and uh, other parts of the world long before what people thought they were. Um, so, yeah. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't disbelieve. Well, as a scientist, one takes empirical evidence where one finds it, and there's all That's kinds great. of evidence that we are not the first high-tech civilization, which then, of course, opens up the question, why aren't they here also, and what happened to them? And is yeah. this historical analysis of cycles, can you expand it practically so it covers much longer periods of time? And then, of course, that opens the question, well, if you have these longer cycles that literally make or break civilizations, 90 seconds, how does that work? Hey, guys, uh, we, are basically, we are basically out of time. You know, that was the magic uh, waving of the wand, Ray. Thank you. John, thank you. Hey, Richard, it's been fun. See you on the other side. Uh, Ray, yeah. don't, don't go anywhere because we have a kind of a debrief after the show for a few minutes. Um, sure. My guest this morning has been Ray Tomes. We've been discussing hyperdimensional physics or harmonic theory physics or any other physics you want to invoke to explain the explicable, which at the moment is how do cycles 
all over the planet of all different diverse things seem to time to time coincide. Tomorrow night, we're going back to the moon and we got some astonishing pictures and we're going to challenge you to basically stick a thumb in the eye of the establishment. We've got a new weapons plan to make them tell us the truth. So until tomorrow night, remember, same time, same bad channel, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>